all progressive forces should support leaving the European Union. It's an anti-democratic, anti-communist, neoliberal, colonialist, imperialist, and ultimately irreformable institution. And it's our job as progressives, as those on the left generally, I suppose, to help people understand these irrefutable facts and the true nature of this extraordinarily reactionary imperialist institution. Because unfortunately, we have not done that so far. The left has not put forward a coherent, clear message as to why the European Union is a bad thing, why it is bad for the international working class and oppressed masses. We haven't put that across clearly. Uh, as you've said, uh, Nigel Farage and the far right have been very clear in their messaging. The left has pretty much just uh, positioned itself in many ways as just being the opposite of whatever the far right is. And it hasn't put forward a consistent position on this matter and and that's what we need to do that's what we need to that's what we need to address moving forward you know so welcome to one dime radio today i am here with comrade paul from the youtube channel marxist paul paul is an irish marxist that makes extremely based Marxist videos, education on all you need to know about Marxism, really. I just highly recommend you watch his content if you are either new to Marxism or if you are already into it and want to learn further. And today we're going to be using this knowledge and Paul's knowledge of the European Union and Ireland to talk about the European Union, specifically how the left should view the European Union. It's a touchy subject because we already know how the far right views the European Union. They tend to dislike it for very racist, sometimes anti-Semitic reasons. But should we take the liberal position that the European Union is fine? A beacon of cosmopolitanism? A beacon of democracy? Well, spoiler alert, no. The EU is a capitalist, free trade, imperialist organization. And we will get to just why that is, and maybe what an alternative could be. But before doing that, before discussing all of the many problems of the EU and the history of the EU, Paul, would you like to introduce yourself and plug your channel? Absolutely. Listen, thanks very much for having me on. It's great to be here. How are things? I hope you're all keeping well. And thanks very much for inviting me on the show. I'm really excited to be here and to be discussing this really important topic. Uh, unfortunately, among Marxists, this question is in many cases taken for granted. Uh, but among people who are quite new to the left, uh, they can often see the European Union as a beacon of progress. And so there's a ma there's like a, a gaping chasm between these two positions, the Marxist position, which is quite critical, and then the new left, the baby leftist position, which, you know, sees this as a, I suppose, a beacon of social progress and diversity and equality and all these sorts of things. Likewise, at the same time, you made a really good point in, in talking about the, the far right. And right from the very beginning of this podcast, we need to be very clear that the criticism that we're proposing here is diametrically opposed to the reactionary, anti-immigrant, chauvinistic, racist bullshit that the far right puts out, you know. At the same time, we need to be careful that we're not defining our politics as Marxists and socialists 
based on whatever the opposite of the far right is. We don't define our politics based on, well, the far right says this, so we must say the opposite of this, whatever that might be. No, we as Marxists are committed to engaging in dialectical materialist and historical materialist analyses of all of these things. We're committed to engaging in the ruthless criticism of all that exists. And it's really up to us as people who are on the left to put forward a principled left-wing Marxist position on the European Union because unfortunately that just hasn't been done. The left has been really wavering with regard to this question. They haven't put forward a really concrete position even if you look at things like Brexit and so on and so forth. Um, the position of, for example, the the Labour Party and so on, it was wavering. You know, mm-hmm. some sections of it were very pro Brexit and some were very against Brexit. You know, and so yeah, there was the Alexit exactly Alexit movement, and we're go- and we'll we'll get into that. We'll talk all about that uh, over the course of this stream. You know, and uh, but yeah, but we're we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves here. We're putting the cart before the horse. But listen, I just want to say thanks very much for having me on. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Uh, my name's Paul Paul Connolly. I have a channel called Marxist Paul. It does short educational videos on Marxist theory, and also if you want more of this kind of thing, relaxing talk and having a bit of fun, but also doing a little bit of theory discussion and diving into things uh, a little bit more of a in a little bit more of a fleshed out way, you can check out the YouTube channel Paul Connolly, and uh, and hopefully you'll find it. Um, I don't know if you're going to find it uh, educational or entertaining or super cringe or whatever, but hopefully it'll be something that'll help uh, pass the hours of your days at work and make all three <laughs> and make life a little bit more enjoyable. Anyway, so check those out and uh, listen. Thanks very much, One Dime, for inviting me on. It's a, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Yeah, so it only made sense that I got you on One Dime Radio as almost a year ago now, probably eight months or seven months. Probably I was on your stream on your channel talking about like what was it accelerationism that's right yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. something like that accelerationism yeah. and ideology <laughs> that, that, that was a lot of fun yeah. that was great i enjoy yeah, those yeah, days yeah. Of, of the uh the marxist paul streams of all the socialist youtubers yeah that go on uh, that, was, that, was, that was a lot of fun well i'm trying yeah, to yeah i uh I'm trying to kick that back off again over on the Paul Connolly channel, but it's a much smaller channel because I only got started a couple of months ago. I only started maybe three months ago or something like that. I tried to, to get it up and running again, the, the whole live streaming thing, because unfortunately there <laughs> there have been some issues uh, in the live streaming community. Uh, pretty much the entire thing. All of the live streamers, they're all bad, including uh, t- myself. It tanks the YouTube channel. <laughs> well, like if you if you live stream and you like leave it on the channel, it take, it tanks the channel's performance because... It kills like your um, watch time, average watch time. So like it's just bad. That's I I knew that I, I knew that I noticed that with a lot of creators who like negatively impacted their channel, which is why I like started a second channel for podcasts and potentially streams also in the future. Well, I'm looking forward to so, that. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, I mean, amongst both of us, we were talking about like the EU misunderstandings surrounding it, kind of just a general frustration with. Uh, on one hand, you know, a lot of the, the the baby leftists, as you said, is really the best way to describe them, who kind of talk about the EU as like, oh, defending against, you know, uh, defending democracy against uh, R- Russia or something and whatever. And uh, also, like, there's this general idea, I think, which is why a lot of people are sympathetic to the EU is because there's this association, especially in America and, and like, um, the Anglo-Saxon countries that European countries are social democracies, you know, basically that it's like Bernie Sanders land. It's a utopia of socialism and capitalism. <laughs> Imagine. <laughs> there is a, 
yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's like there's this idea that, yeah, it's, it's democratic socialism, right? The supposed thing that, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders, Jeremy Corbyn promote. Mm. There's this idea that these things are already uh, in place in countries like Germany, France, um yeah, or the UK if you're your AOC you think socialism is when the UK uh, <laughs> socialism is when imperialism and colonialism. That's <laughs> I mean, yeah, there is this uh, weird idea that uh, I mean like yeah, Europe and European Western European countries in particular are some sort of a democratic socialist utopia when in reality it's more like uh undemocratic capitalism. But um yeah, we'll get we'll get into that uh, specifically why that is. Uh, I mean, I think one one obvious thing that anyone who knows a little political economy can see is one big problem is that the European Union countries don't have their own currency. They they have to use the euro. If you understand something like modern monetary theory, you know that that just dooms your economy. Mm, mm. That's just the stupid idea in general. But why is that? We'll get into the structure of the EU. We'll notice by the end of this podcast, I hope, is this is all there's a reason the eu is structured this way it's for a very specific purpose so without further ado we might as well get straight into the founding of the eu and what its purpose was yeah absolutely this is going to be a really interesting conversation you know we're going to talk about imperialism the purpose of the eu its founding we're going to talk about the institutionalization of neoliberalization its neoliberal agenda we're going to talk about how it's an anti-democratic institution we're going to talk about the issues of currency sovereignty and then we're going to talk about of course the potential of things like legsit as you mentioned earlier on you know and, and why what the case for that may be and, and so on and so forth so this is going to be really exciting and i'm really interested in it now when it comes to this particular conversation about looking at the founding of the eu i'm going to be a really annoying marxist and i'm going to insist on a marxist analysis of this rather than more careful general. with the words though <laughs> <laughs> like explain the words because i'm gonna yeah 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 I'm for, gonna for, for some for some people who uh you know aren't us the idea um dialectics dialectical i have the habit of doing that too by the way like sometimes i'll say dialectical just as a way of saying like reckoning with contradiction like i'll say it very i'll say it very casually and people will be like what the hell are you talking about man what the fuck is a dialectical what are you smoking where can i get some and or materialist I'm like you're a materialist that means you like you're materialistic why do you just love shit <laughs> can you not just live without shit what, what's what's your problem marxism is when you love stuff but yeah, I mean, well, the first thing to clarify, for, importantly, is because we, we casually dropped the bomb that uh, the EU is imperialist, which for some people will just be, I mean, we should probably actually start off with that, to be honest, is the founding of the EU and what imperialism is, because I know when you, when someone hears the EU is imperialist, they'll be like, wait, what? You're they're not like an empire, because a lot of people think imperialism is when empire. Yeah. So they'll think like imperialism, imperial Japan the Roman Empire, they'll think it's invading. So a lot of people think like any country just like uh, expanding. That's what it takes to be imperialist when, I mean, it's a lot more, it's not, a, it's not, a, that definition just falls apart when you actually apply it to different geopolitical circumstances, which is why the Marxist understanding of imperialism is just a lot superior in my opinion. So we might as well get into exactly what imperialism is from the Marxist standpoint and 
what its relation is with the founding of the European Union. Definitely. I think this is a really important conversation. Unfortunately, too many conversations about the European Union haven't situated this within a Marxist context. And so as a result of that, they haven't been able to draw the correct conclusions about this matter. You know, they end up falling into very liberal or conservative positions. And that's that's not what we want to do. We need to give people a framework to understand how to approach this question. And so with that, we're going to dive into the question of imperialism and how Marxists understand that. Now, there's a short version that I can give. I'm going to give a brief overview. If any of the aspects of this are, if you believe that they might be insufficient or unclear or if they need to be dived into more, please let me know. I'm happy to dive into them a lot more and to, to, to flesh them out a little bit more. For the audience, I apologize. The shortened version will probably only take about two or three minutes. The long version might take about 10 or 15 minutes. But uh, just let me know if you want me to expand on any aspect of it. And we can give ourselves a really firm base from which we can build our analysis of the European Union from. It, trust me, it's going gonna, it's gonna to pay off in the end. It's all going to make sense later on, uh, 20 minutes from now. And you're gonna have way bigger. You're gonna have way better arguments against the EU than the than the far right who always like everything they do capitulates to the lowest common denominator of explanations. So they'll scapegoat immigrants. You know, uh, they'll very appeal to like the most backward instincts when it comes to why the EU is bad. I mean, it's already weird in general to hate an institution just because of like more uh, diversity of people joining countries. But even if one is going to take it, like it's just super primitive, you know, like I don't like the brown people. Oh, and we're not even getting into like the Syrian refugee crisis versus how the Ukrainian crisis has been handled and how like oh, when it's yeah. white people. We can return to that whole Fortress Europa conversation later on. It really puts the whole Donald yeah. Trump Mexican the Donald Trump Mexican wall thing. It, oh, it, we'll get to that. It, it puts sure. it to shame. It's, it's fucking horrific. This idea of Fortress Europa and how it's this white supremacist bastion, you know. But uh, we can we, we can return to this a little bit later. That probably Euro- Europe's crazy. Europe's just so racist, man. Like, oh, it's so fucked up. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah. But, and, and that's against people outside of it as well, but also uh, internal colonies as well, which is, again, something which we can... Yeah. We're going we're gonna to address this all in due course. And I, I, I just want to say, though, is like, even if one is going to take a uh, anti-immigration stance... Like, let's say even one's going to take that. They usually don't have an explanation, the far right don't, for why immigration even happens in the EU. Uh, like, they just, they just think it happens. They don't, well, they don't even explain why it happens. And thus their solutions just end up being basically like violence. Uh, so, and um, also, you know, there is an argument to say like immigration, there's some bad things about immigration. Like, we're not here saying like all immigration is good, but it's not from like, a racist standpoint it's because like when you have people leave their countries it's a brain drain on their own people like on their own countries so when you have people flee countries usually due to impoverishment you know structurally you know enforced by imperialism which we'll get to uh basically you have a system where like you have depopulation so you look at a country like bulgaria the fastest shrinking country in, in the world you know like people are like leaving the country en masse uh, and you have this. This is just not good for any country. Just so, so we'll, we'll we'll get to that. But you know, these are answers that the right simply just doesn't have. These are questions that the right doesn't have answers to, and we'll get to that. And I I also just want to 
I just I also just want to highlight as well like anytime we have a, a conversation about like immigration is, there's also that there's that tendency that was mentioned earlier where saying where you look at the far right and they're like oh we're anti-immigration and so if you're on the left then you know we just must be the opposite of that we're just we're pro-immigration and it's like well no there's there's more nuanced understanding it's like what's causing immigration you know Karl Marx addressed this of course in like the 1870s when he was he saw what had happened with the Irish famine as a result of the Irish famine a million people were displaced they had to they were dispersed all over the world they came into England they were competing with the factory workers and this drove wages down and so but his his response was not to take the far right response of saying oh fuck these fuck these immigrants these immigrants need to get out of here they, they took our jobs or, or some bullshit like that no his response was to support the revolutionary movements abroad he was his response was to support the revolutionary movement in Ireland to combat this you know to really get to the root cause of the problem which was of course imperialism you know imperialism which had caused this genocidal famine uh, in the mid 1800s in Ireland Ireland, you know the great famine that, that we talk about here so but we can we can talk about that and in any case we capitalism are, doesn't create any famines what are you talking about only, only communism creates famines actually i don't even think it's it's only communism i think it's stalin just stalin alone single-handedly eats all the grain and <laughs> famine stalin created the potato famine actually you know <laughs> he just came when he was born he just fucking inhaled all of our potatoes that motherfucker <laughs> <laughs> it's not like it's not like in, it's not like india created more famine single-handedly in India than in uh, than pretty much any socialist country in history. But aside from that, let's get to let's get to imperialism. Yeah, let's get, let's get back on track. Let's get into imperialism because this is all related. Trust me, uh, you view, listener, viewer, uh, wherever you might be consuming this uh, this podcast, this will pay off later on. You will gain dividends from this uh, at a later stage. Imperialism. Okay. It's impossible to fully understand the European Union from the left-wing perspective without an understanding of the Marxist theory of capitalist imperialism, okay? And I'm very clear about those terms, capitalist imperialism, because imperialism did exist all throughout history. I mean, you can go back, of course, to the Roman Empire. You can go, you can go through feudalism, to slave society, and so on and so forth. And even things like colonialism and stuff, there were elements of that historically. We're talking about capitalist imperialism today, okay? But first, we need to make sure we're on the same page and we're using the same terminology. So let's do a very brief overview of what capitalist imperialism is exactly. As you rightly addressed beforehand, many believe when they hear the term imperialism that we're referring to either militarism or colonialism. Now, militarism and colonialism do play a role in capitalist imperialism, but they're only secondary aspects of it, okay? When Marxists refer to capitalist imperialism, we're referring primarily to an economic mechanism, okay? Keep that in mind. It's an economic mechanism. Let's return to the conversation of, of capitalism so that we can understand this. There are three main stages to capitalism. One, mercantile capitalism. Two, industrial capitalism. And you can think of your industrial revolution. And then finally, imperialist capitalism or capitalism imperialism. So capitalist imperialism or... And then techno-feudalism. Techno-feudalism, the next stage, of course. <laughs> That's what Lenin wrote about, obviously. <laughs> Take it for granted, you know. Uh, but capitalist imperialism or monopoly capitalism, as it's sometimes referred 
referred to, refers to the stage of capitalism that occurs after industrial capitalism, okay? This stage of capitalist imperialism emerged at the beginning of the 20th century and it continues to this day. Now, to briefly summarize its five aspects, and really I'm paraphrasing Lenin from the text, uh, from Lenin's text, Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism, he characterizes it in five, uh, five main aspects, really. The first aspect is that free competition among capitalists has led to a concentration of production and capital which has given way to monopolies that now play a decisive role in economic life. So rather than the early capitalism where there was a large number of small companies, now there's a small number of large companies that work together, okay? The next stage beyond this, the second aspect of imperialism, is that industrial capital becomes merged with bank capital creating what's known as finance capital. Now those who wield this finance capital controlling both industry and the banks merge with the bourgeois government and come to form a financial oligarchy. So we mentioned that we have this concentration of production and capital into a fewer and fewer number of hands. This is the process of monopolization. This monopolization occurs with industrial capitalism with the industry you know they're working together in the steel factories whatever so on and so forth they get together then a small number of businesses come to form cartels syndicates trusts essentially unions for the bosses where they can set the terms of trade prices and so on and they can create monopolies among themselves they basically crony capitalism man. exactly it's exactly it. it's crony capitalism and it's very funny by the way the libertarians want to sort of turn back the clock and go back to this period of not true, true capitalism. not true capitalism it's not real capitalism uh, but of course they, because they don't have a historical materialist analysis they don't understand that the free competition of early capitalism inevitably gives rise to this monopolization process as the small businesses are strangled and squeezed out of the market by the big guys. Do you know what I mean? I mean, has anyone played Monopoly? <laughs> literally. Play Monopoly. That's literally what describes it. I mean, if you're in an industry, you see every industry gets dominated by like two companies. And this is That's it. That's capitalism. This is it. This it's is a it. game. But the <laughs> it's literally it. it. It's Netflix and it's Amazon Prime or it's, you know, whatever. It's, it, it's these guys, you know, we, we all know Coke the monopolies, the major monopolies that control the world right now, you know. Mm -hmm. But importantly, right, Go off. we've got monopoly industry. We've got monopolized industry. We also have monopolized banking. The same thing happens with the banks. These more and more merge with each other, Okay. Eventually, at a certain stage of capitalism, between the transition from industrial capitalism to imperialist capitalism, the merging occurs between industrial capital and banking capital as the banks find themselves in control of the, the capital of industry. And more and more, they become the same people. They become the financial oligarchy, you know. Uh, and, you know, they come to form uh, a single group in and of themselves, a financial oligarchy. They find themselves in positions of government. They merge with the bourgeois government. Uh, we can see examples of this, for example, with uh, take Jack Ma and the CPC, the Chinese uh, Communist Party. And he is, of course, this financial oligarch. He is a monopoly capitalist. Alibaba has been prosecuted, in fact, for its monopolization uh, of, of, of industry. 
Uh, and he, so he's this private monopoly capitalist. He's fighting for reforms. And of course, he has a seat on the in the Communist Party of China. So in the government that's that's sort of at the head of this state apparatus in China. You know, so you can see this process uh, at play at the moment in China. And, and it's quite interesting to, to view. Oh, no. There's a whole conversation about China there, which you're we're, gonna, you're we're gonna, not going to... You're going to... You're going to anger the... Uh, <laughs> our our, our pro-CPC, current CPC friends. Please don't take your anger out on one dime. Uh, if you want to take your anger out on anyone, please take your anger out on me. You can talk to me on Twitter. You can join my Discord. You can... We can talk. We can we can hash it out because I used to be very pro-China and we can, <laughs> we can hash it out. <laughs> we can explain how capitalism has grown in China and, and, and what that's led to. Um, but basically, so you have this financial oligarchy as a result... Socialism, of though. What are you talking about? With Chinese it's socialism. It's socialism because they said they are socialists. So that means they're socialists. You know, so now that I think about wrong. now that I think about it, Germany in the nineteen thirties and early nineteen forties also called themselves socialists. That's a compelling argument, actually. It's true. You know, <laughs> the, what about what about Burma? You know, I'm pretty and sure they're, they're, they're communist Burma. I'm pretty sure they've <laughs> achieved higher stage full communism, if, uh, for being real. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's let let's let's get back on track. We we've, we've been talking about how yes. we have monopolies. Okay, uh, they come together, they merge with the banks, they merge with the government, and they form a finan- a financial oligarchy. And they have these oligopolies where a very small number of people are in control of everything. They have this finance capital, which again is the merged form of industrial capital and banking capital, and they export this around the world. Okay, this is very important. Rather than just commodities being exported now capital itself is exported around the world this is because they have essentially used up all of the facilities within national boundaries and they need capital needs to expand beyond national territory you know beyond the nation state to continue to loot and plunder the world okay so those who wield this finance capital, this capital that has been accrued through industrial capitalism, through their businesses, through their industries, and also is supported by the banks, through finance and so on, they they export this capital around the world. And, they, and through this, they make less developed or underdeveloped countries dependent upon the imperialist powers. Now, what does that mean, export of capital as opposed to export of commodities? We can think of foreign direct investment as a really good example of this. Outward foreign direct investment in particular, uh, for example, uh, the United States or Germany or France or whatever, uh, would be net exporters of capital engaging in huge amounts of foreign direct investment in their colonies or semi-colonies and all of these spheres of influence that they have around the world in order to extract what we call super profits from these uh, oppressed nations around the world. Okay, so this is the system that they have developed uh, and it is very, very bad for everyone involved. I'm sorry. I've, I know I've thrown a lot of terms at you there. Semi-colonies. Colonies, super profits. Super profits. Yeah. Does, that, does super profit just mean when it's like a very big profit, like Super Mario? Let's just let's just simplify it and say that these are massive, massive profits wherein, uh, for example, you take a cup of coffee that takes five, let's say the equivalent of uh, you're living in like North America or Europe. Let's say it costs five cents uh, to make and they can sell it for five euros or five dollars. So, <laughs> you know what I mean? So like there's a massive markup there. You know, it takes five, five cents to produce. Uh, and, and that may even include the labor that's gone into it, the, the natural resources, you know, paying the workers, everything, uh, transportation, everything. Yeah, super profit. Yeah, it's just super profits, basically just super exploitation in, in the sense that like, if you, if you look at like, for example, I don't know, uh, a Kit Kat, 
why is that so cheap? You know, is it really that cheap? And it's because, no, if you produce the KitKat in your own country, you know, it would be worth significantly less. And it's only you're able to sell it at such a cheap cost and thus get insane amounts of market share, get insane amount of sales, get insane amount of uh, profits, mainly because you underpaid the person making that. And you did that by manipulating, interfering in that country's politics directly or indirectly, you know, indirectly, whether it be the IMF or directly, whether you be Guatemala and you basically install a dictator uh, uh, through, you know, CIA backing to uh, install a banana monopoly <laughs> of United Fruits. So it can be direct or indirect, but it's really, you know, when we say these countries that are under the victim, that are victims of imperialism, that they're exploited, some, you know, like, economists who don't pay attention to anything will say uh well don't, didn't they choose that themselves isn't that their own laws and it's like uh well under whose influence right so you you see this is how it basically works is and this is by nature kind of it, what we're implying too is why it's like a stage of capitalism is because this sort of becomes like necessary for capitalist firms to expand you know once they get national they have to go international because then they you know, they, they hit a certain threshold uh, if they only are nationally. And if they're going to expand internationally, they better have the optimal conditions uh, to make as much profits as they can, which is where, you know, the state and organizations like you mentioned facilitate it, facilitate the relations and the low wages, you know, through inter in influencing governments and whatnot, so that these conditions are optimal for the capitalists to exploit people. Basically, I mean, just watch Michael Parenti's speech about um, government that uh, no countries are poor. They're uh, some are just more exploited than others, or I, th I think something like that. But a really good speech. Yeah, yeah. No, you're you're exactly right. It can be very explicit. I mean, most explicit form of this is actually is direct colonialism, where you know a, a country is a direct colony, like French Guiana is. You know, it's in Latin America, but it's in the European Union. So hell, it's you know it's just north of Brazil and two countries over from Venezuela, but it's apparently a European Union territory with all of the benefits. It uses the euro and, and so on and so forth. And uh, this is the expansion beyond national boundaries into other territories, you know. So it could be really direct like that, or it could be indirect. It could be these imperialist countries uh, installing people into important positions within the state. For example, in Ireland, the head of on Garda which is the Irish police force, is a guy called Drew Harris, who is an MI5 agent, you know, who works for MI5, you know, uh, and he used to work for, like, in the Sixth County State, like, he used to work there. Um, but so he's actually acting on behalf of British capital to, to keep Irish people, uh, you know, in our place, you know, and, and this happens all throughout government, the, the installation uh, of people to suit imperialist agendas and facilitate this super exploitation that occurs, you know, between the imperialists and the colonies and the semi-colonies, you know, which, and by the way, that's also, that's in the, that's in the supposedly independent Republic of Ireland, which actually in reality is a semi-colony, um, but that's a different conversation, so we can get into that at a different stage. And this is, it's also worth saying, like, what differentiates it from colonialism, too, is, is that often it'll be the bourgeoisie of that country that facilitates the imperialism, meaning that they will, like, for example, like, the ruling class of Mexico will want imperialism in a certain sense, because they get a large share of those profits. You know, obviously, Americans will get a large share of it, too. But often it'll be like the the 
ruling class of that country and the ruling class of the imperialist countries collaborate to exploit that country, if that makes sense. So it's not always, whereas colonialism, it's much more like direct, like, you know, you have, uh, like, like, for example, the uh, British East India Company literally controlled, um, which part of India was it again? Uh, Bengal, yeah, I think was entirely ruled by a corporation, which is crazy, uh, and uh, caused a f famine or two. Um, but yeah, it, yeah. And, um, I mean, yeah, so like, this is the thing is we, it's not always obvious because like, I would say the best example, you know, France still has its colonies in, uh, whereas you can look, you can look at America. A lot of Americans like to claim that, um, you know, like we don't have colonies. We're not like France and Britain, but you know, they have, they're the biggest imperialist power. If you look at Latin America, whenever a Latin American government or whenever Latin American people elect a government that defies U.S. interests, you know, you see they get Salvador Allende. They get, uh, they, they get, you see, there's uh, people who know about this. Just read The Open Veins of Latin America by uh, Eduardo Galeano. It talks about imperialism and um and in Latin America, basically just says everything we're saying, but like specifically Latin America, whereas we're focusing on European Union, which it's related, related, but and very similar. There, there are very similar yeah. dynamics as well going on as well on the EU side. Uh, but I will also say that you know these are also, of course, uh, Latin America is semi-colonized uh, by the United States uh, in, in a plethora of ways, as you said. Salvador Allende has overthrown these. These democratically elected uh, leaders are overthrown, of course, by U.S. imperialism. But there are, of course, also, you know, actual direct colonies like Guam. You know, Guam, Guam is, of course, yeah, an, yeah. an actual <laughs> old style colonialism that, actually, you know, still exists to this day. Uh, there is old style colonialism that still exists. Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico, exactly. Some people, some would argue Hawaii as well. Uh, so there are these colonies do still exist. It's just a, it's taken a different form. The essence remains the same, uh, but the form has, has has changed. You know, so I think that that's an important point. These, these, it's still colonialism. It's just under a different guise, and that's why sometimes we talk about old style colonialism, and today we talk about more so neo colonialism. You know, uh, but we can return to that because that's actually an important aspect of uh, of imperialism. You know, so let's just let's just quickly recap on what we've what we've got so far. So with the three stages we've gone through so far of imperialism, we've got the free competition among capitalists has led to a concentration of production and capital, which has given way to monopolies that now play a decisive role in economic life. Industrial capital has merged with banking capital to create what's known as finance capital, and those who wield this finance capital, controlling both industry and the banks, merge with the bourgeois government and come to form a financial oligarchy. Rather than commodities just being exported, rather than just basic trade across boundaries, now capital itself is exported around the world, mainly through foreign direct investment, through buying up mines in this or that country and extracting resources and sending it back to imperial core countries and so on and so forth, okay? Beyond this, these are three characteristics. There's four. There's the fourth characteristic and the fifth characteristic. The fourth characteristic is that international monopolist capitalist associations are formed in order to share out the world among themselves and divvy up the loot globally. Now, what the fuck do I mean by that? What is an international capitalist association? Or an international monopolist capitalist association. The EU. Exactly. The EU. This is literally it. Bang <laughs> on. You fucking A. You, you hit the nail on the head. Exactly. Uh, another example for a more general, for people who don't know that much about the EU, we can look at the IMF. Uh, we can look at the World Bank and so on and so forth. Uh, people might say, well, hang on a minute now. The IMF and the World Bank are participated in by pretty much all the countries in the world. But like, like most of the countries, the vast, vast majority, like over 180 countries are, are part of these institutions. Yeah, that's well and good to say. But of course, 
course, the United States has over 17% voting rights in these. Uh, and you can imagine the 17% uh, and then the other, you know, 180 countries plus uh, have to <laughs> divvy up the 87% or uh, 83%, excuse me, uh, between themselves. You can imagine that the United States has a an extremely unfair share of votes within these institutions and, and through this way they can force countries basically to enact policies that are beneficial to their own imperialist interests. You know, they can get them to to institute structural adjustment programs which open them up, basically open up the veins of these countries to foreign imperialism. So opening it up and saying, hey, you know, you've got to keep your country open so that we can buy up these mines, uh, we can build these roads, yeah, okay, but that's pretty much just to facilitate the imperialist exploitation the loot and plunder of these countries structural adjustment is basically double speak for um let us exploit you as much as possible and don't let workers rebel no minimum wage yeah it's it's that's what it is and the fifth point of car of imperialism the fifth characteristic of imperialism is that the territorial division of the world between the great capitalist imperialist powers is completed through colonialism neo-colonialism and so on so that, that's very much tied into what we've been talking about already you know so historically uh, when this was occurring when we transitioned from industrial capitalism you know i'm talking on a global scale here when we talk when we transitioned uh dominantly across the world from industrial capitalism to imperialist capitalism we saw the scramble for africa and we saw the division the carving up of the continent of africa and of course latin america happened before that but we saw this carving up between the imperialist powers you know you guys get this these guys get that and so on and so forth colonialism was the dominant way of territorial territorially dividing the world at that stage in time today it's mostly true semi-colonialism or neo-colonialism and carving up these spheres of influence and it's very much as you said it's it's uh, basically using soft power uh, and sometimes not so soft power to for example uh, overthrow democratically elected governments in latin america or instill uh, puppets into state apparatuses in ireland like at the the top of the the irish police force and, and so on and so forth on behalf of britain and so on and so forth so this is how neo-colonialism functions today you know those are the five characteristics, okay? So again, just to briefly revise those, and we, we, we'll, we're going to dive into the European Union's foundation and how this occurs uh, based on these five characteristics. It is important that we keep these in mind. Again, free competition has given way to monopolies. With these monopolies, we've got monopolized industrial capital and monopolized banking capital, which is now merged to create finance capital, which has created what's known as a financial oligarchy. This financial oligarchy exports its finance capital around the world, think, think foreign direct investments in terms of uh, capitalist or, or bourgeois language, and then these financial oligarchs use international monopolist capitalist associations to share out the world among themselves and divvy up the loot globally. This causes the territorial of the the territorial division of the entire world between the great capitalist powers via colonialism, neo-colonialism, and so on. These are the five characteristics of capitalist imperialism. Now, please, I know there's there's so much there that might need to be listened back to about ten times. I'm I'm not sure. One time, would you like me to expand think, on any of those no, no. aspects? I I think you that for. I think a lot of people might actually get that. I think where a lot of people will be confused is how does this apply to the EU? I thought the EU was Bernie Sanders land. 
<laughs> which which we'll which we'll get to. But uh, I think uh, what's worth also saying is why. Um, see, first of all, it's important to establish that Marxism is a field of study rather than like a religious doctrine made by one guy, right? So. Imperialism isn't a thing that Marx really wrote very much about, mainly because it more so it developed much more acutely after his death. So it was Lenin expanding, using the Marxist dialectical method, uh, historical material of, sorry, historical materialism, more specifically in this instance, um, of really applying Marxism on an international scale. And this is where I think Lenin makes probably arguably the biggest contribution to Marxism in the sense that he shows how um, actually this idea that capitalism is always a progressive force, which, believe it or not, Marx and Engels were very, actually, I would say, over-enthusiastic about the power of capitalism and its development. Because, you know, Marx and Engels, they're talking about how Capitalism is necessary before socialism, which, you know, has some truth to it. But um, this, there's this idea that capitalism will always develop the productive forces, which will pave the way for socialism. But, and, you know, and this is why Marx and Engels, they thought the colonization of India was progressive, believe it or not. In their earlier they work, that they, yeah. That, yeah, well, they thought that uh, that uh, England was bringing capitalism and the productive forces to England. So, so, uh, to, <laughs> yeah, well, they did to England, but not to India. And uh, turns out that was obviously not true because India actually went from having a, one of the largest shares of the global economy to one of to a significantly lower amount. Like they actually underdeveloped England significantly, you know, because England was being ruled for the benefit of Britain, not for the benefit of India, you know, and. Lenin really is one of the first to really analyze this phenomenon and show how actually capitalism is productive and progressive in certain senses for some countries, but it's, for a lot of countries, it actually is almost the opposite. It regresses their development. It underdevelops them. You know, And this is really important because you're not going to get this only from reading Marx, but you will get it from reading Lenin and also many Marxists who came after Lenin, you know, like, Probably I would recommend uh, Semir Amin is like a very good Marxist theorist when it comes to imperialism and the third world and stuff like that. But yeah, uh, probably the question, though, ringing in people's heads is, well, but Europe, European Union, I thought that's more like the, you know, how would that be? They, they might think the European Union is just like an alliance, like NATO or something, which <laughs> which itself is a kind of imperialist. But, Problem, uh, yeah. <laughs> 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 but you know that's n not in the minds of the the new leftists uh or even marxists honestly maybe like there's some uh, socialist part a lot of socialist parties in europe actually that um support the eu whether that's out of fear or out of stupidity uh but yeah we'll get straight into that now about the founding of the eu and its purpose and how it ties into all of what we just said Mm, yeah, it's it's a, it's a really important question. I will also say though, just to 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 give a little bit of credit to Marx, at at the end of his life, from the eighteen seventies onwards, Marx realized that colonialism was not a progressive force at all. And uh, so, some of the like, the young Marx stuff that you would have heard about this progress of colonialism, well, even Engels, like uh, I'm thinking principles of communism, because he says that about India in progressive 
principles of communism. Yeah, yeah. Later on, this stuff kind of it, it's revealed that mm, you know, no, that was that was incorrect. But uh, but yeah, it, it is really from Lenin onwards uh, that you start to see a real uh, turnaround and say, actually, no, hang on, maybe this wasn't a hundred percent correct. Maybe the historical materialist understanding of the very rigid stages from primitive communism to slave society to feudalism to capitalism to socialism to communism, maybe that isn't one hundred percent rigidly true in every case and every time and of course this was proven true uh, by i would say the, the chinese revolution where it was very much rather than being based in the industrial proletariat it was a lot more peasant focused and, and from there they were able to build uh, socialism in, in that direction so i think the chinese revolution really does um, i suppose refute getting the ahead notion. of yourself there <laughs> <laughs> yeah sorry we're, that's we're jumping very, that's a very big topic that's a big topic for probably for a, an entire different podcast but yeah let's 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 get back on track and let's talk about the origins of the european union and how this relates to the the, the five aspects of imperialism that we talked about so yes. far okay so now that we've briefly covered the general Marxist theory of capitalist imperialism, we can look at where the European Union fits into this, you know, where it fits into this theory, you know. So for those who've been taking, paying attention and paying attention to one dime, of course, you'll note that the European Union corresponds almost word for word with the fourth aspect of the Marxist theory of imperialism. It is an international monopolist capitalist association that's set up by the imperialist bourgeoisie to manage monopolies beyond national boundaries and to facilitate facilitate the exploitation of the oppressed nations of the world, including both outside the European Union and indeed even certain countries within the European Union. Okay? There's a lot there. Let's take a step back and look at how the European Union came to be, and then we can see how it corresponds to these stages. Okay? So... In the wake of the Second World War, an inter-imperialist war for the redivision of the world, which is something Lenin talked about a little bit in Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism, Europe was in ruins. However, as the war didn't take place on US soil, with the exception of Pearl Harbor, the United States was able to get through it relatively unscathed and most of its financial resources were intact. It was able to thus emerge from the Second World War as the global capitalist imperialist hegemon. Okay? Compared to the war-torn decimated Europe, the US was incredibly wealthy, but the US needed to ensure that it still had allies and markets to trade with against the rising threat of the Soviets spreading from the east. So, in order to maintain imperialist alloys, to capture the markets of Europe, to restore Western capitalism and thwart the rise of socialism, the United States pumped over $15 billion into rebuilding Europe through what's known as the Marshall Plan, or the European Recovery Program. Now, with inflation, importantly, that $15 billion will be roughly equivalent to $120 billion today. Okay, so this would create this would essentially create an anti-Soviet or anti-communist capitalist bloc in Western and Southern Europe. Okay, but now just in terms of where those fifteen billion dollars went, uh, it wasn't distributed or distributed equally among the European countries. The primary recipients of the Marshall Plan aid were the UK receiving approximately fifty percent of the funds, uh, West Germany receiving approximately twelve percent of the funds, and that's significant because uh, West Germany was an important stronghold uh, for the United States. They considered it to be a very important capitalist ally because, as we know, uh, the communists uh, suffered a pretty 
bad experience under Nazi Germany prior to this. So there wasn't a really strong communist movement. So West Germany was very, very important to, to, to the US imperialists, you know. So it's, it shouldn't be a surprise that they were the one of the main recipients of the Marshall Plan aid. Uh, and of course, France as well, which received approximately 8% of the funds. So these three powers, the UK, France and Germany, received approximately 70% of the support from the Marshall aid plan, uh, excuse me, from the Marshall Plan aid, uh, with 30% being dished out among the remaining recipient countries. Now keep this in mind, because today the European Union is led by the alliance of two massive capitalist imperialist powers. France and Germany, with the UK formerly being a major imperialist ally until it left the EU in 2020. When we consider the main benefactors of the Marshall Plan, we can see that it's no accident that France and Germany have emerged today as the main imperialist powers in the European Union. Okay, so people wonder why like France and Germany are where they are today. It, it's no surprise when you look at the Marshall Plan and how the distribution of funds occurred there. And also importantly, that the EU is essentially a US imperialist uh, backed, uh, let's say, uh, union. Actually, I want to. I should interject there because maybe at that point, but right now, I would argue that the EU has very different interests than the U.S. Even though they're both capitalist imperialist interests, they're their own imperialist power that actually is sometimes at odds with America. Like for example, like the question of whether they the U.S. wanted, like the U.S. for example wanted to alienate Iran completely from the rest of the world, whereas the um, imperialists in in Europe wanted to trade with Iran, right? So there was like, the, there's these conflicts here and there. There's conflicts about Russia, obviously, like prior to recently, they were buying like insane amounts of gas from Russia, which the United States didn't want to happen. Like uh, there's, they're, they're at like, as we saw with World War One, right? Capitalist imperialist powers don't always, I mean, I mean, I know you know this, but it's for the audience, but like capitalist imperialist powers don't always get along. You know, and then we saw that <laughs> we see that with World War One, World War Two, but like most obvious with World War One, because in World War One there was no like communist countries; they were all capitalists. And you have now with the Russia-Ukraine conflict, uh, not to get too much into that, obviously, but you see like capitalist countries—they're they're not always aligned at all. You know, they they uh, are very uh, self-destructive in many ways, and um, we'll get how to EU is sort of developed in a way to kind of rebuild European imperialism, which is what you're alluding to. Uh, because, you know, after World, after World War II, Europe, European capitalism, their position from what they were previously was just completely diminished compared to the American position, which was, you know, just at a new level of hegemony. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Yeah, and and it, European imperialism definitely has uh, got back up on its feet and is now, in some ways, challenging uh, U.S. imperialism. But we're looking at the historical aspect, and historically, it was very much backed by the United States. Yes. Uh, now that it's back on its feet, it's able to stand up to the United States in some regards, but. Uh, they are very much uh, embedded with each other and uh, intertwined in, in many ways still. So what perhaps in the next 10 to 20 years, we may see some sort of break uh, between the imperialist powers. Let's see how things go. We, I, I don't have my Accelerationist for Trump. <laughs> <laughs> no, but for real though, like Trump disturbed the alliance between like the American imperialists and the European imperialists. Like uh, for anyone who hasn't watched, like watch Prolocult's History is Marching. He has like a, he's a YouTuber, Marxist YouTuber. He has a great documentary about imperialism 
and about like how the U.S. imperialists and European imperialists have like their little conflicts. It's really interesting stuff. Mm, it's fantastic, and I couldn't recommend Protocult more. It's a fantastic channel, and and everybody needs to go and, and give them some love. Absolutely fantastic work there. Great documentaries. Yeah. So with this Marshall Plan, various countries in Southern and Western Europe began to rebuild capitalism in their countries and abroad. The process of capital concentration into fewer and fewer hands, typical, typical of this transition that we talked about earlier, from free competition to monopoly capitalism, this once again occurred with the formation of cartels, trusts, syndicates, and so on among the large capitalist powers in order to monopolize and corner markets. Now, of course, this occurred at the national level, but it also occurred across the borders that were standing in the way of the maximum of profit. To this end, the European Coal and Steel Community, or ECSC, the earliest precursor to the European Union, was established in 1951 by the Treaty of Paris to regulate the coal and steel industries of West Germany, France, Italy, Luxembourg, the Netherlands and Belgium. The ECSC was created by the capitalists who ruled these industries in collusion with their various capitalist nation-states rather than being created by the workers. So, from the very roots of this European project, its basis was International Monopolist Capitalist Association. It was never, ever a proletarian internationalist project, but a project by and for the re-emerging imperialist bourgeoisie post-Second World War. Okay? A US-backed project for the restoration of Western capitalism against the threat of socialism from the East. I really want to I really want to underscore it and highlight that. That's really, really important. It was never uh, yeah, conceived. It's basically of. the capitalist Soviet Union. Exactly, exactly, yeah. It was never conceived of as like this uh, democratic socialist thing. Never at all. Uh, in fact, yeah, the, well, here, here's where I'll interject, though. It's because while that very much structurally was the purpose of the EU in terms of like what the incentives going into it and what it ended up becoming and largely what the in financial incentives in building it were, there were that wasn't always like the political rhetoric surrounding it because like all capitalist projects they always justify their imperialist projects through like double speak right they'll justify it through oh we want a dem democratic cooperation or uh, globalism which by back back then was actually a very enticing term uh, because you know like now we associate globalism with like capitalist globalism so it's like eh, right but I can see why even leftists would fall for this because, you know, like as leftists, you, like globalism is great. Like it sounds like a, a cool idea. Why don't we like countries get along? Why don't we like it's it, like in theory, it's great. Right. But um, this was used more so for like globalism of corporations to run wherever they want. You know, whereas previously they had all sort of borders like uh, like tariffs, things that would uh, sorry, I mean, obstacles that would uh, really prevent capital from going from country to country so freely and drawing profits from different places uh, which we'll get into more later with like capital controls and stuff like that but it's worth highlighting that like actually prominent um quote-unquote leftists supported the construction of the european union on a kind of strange political basis like for example um François Mitterrand in France president of France elected in 1982 I believe in power for almost 20 years um uh, not 20, some, he was in power for a while, but Francois Mitterrand, prior to the EU being built, he was enthusiastic about the idea. This was before like European Union formally was built, but he was like enthusiastic about the idea because he saw it as like this, like, 
internationalist you know and this is keep in mind this is like a quote-unquote self-described socialist who was elected which you know it was social democracy we'd call it social democracy here but it was it was much more radical compared to like you know what france has now with like macron and you know people more importantly people who followed him who voted for him really bought into the eu including actually some later members of the frankfurt school like theorists like uh not the not the Marxist ones, but like uh, Jurgen Habermas, by no means a right winger, uh, was very enthusiastic about the EU. You had, I'm sure you had left a, a lot of other leftists too who kind of were enthusiastic about it, and that's mainly because they fell for this doublespeak that is, oh, internationalism and stuff like that. But we see structurally, if you look at the incentives, the money going into the EU, and more importantly, like what it just manifested into. This was, it's not a project that was, had good intentions and became evil. It was, it, it was intentionally always a capitalist imperialist project. And that's what we want to make so clear here is that it's not like something you can just magically reform. You can't just say, oh, we want a nicer EU. It's built, its very existence is built upon capitalist imperialism. 100% and I, I totally agree with that. And we, we will dive into the precisely what those structures are and how they institutionalize neoliberalism and anti-communism and anti just being anti-democracy in general you know we're gonna we're gonna dive into that i think it's really it's a really important uh, subject um, but you know you've also alluded to something that's really really important because all activity at the economic base and you know we've been talking about economic imperialism all activity at the economic base you know it generates its corresponding superstructural justifying ideology you know the justifying ideology of the, U- the european union is of course not to restore and protect western capitalist imperialism to capture markets to facilitate super exploitation and Internally and externally and to fight the rights of socialism but rather the ideology that it promotes is a peace project you know this is just a peace project to ensure that nothing like the second world war ever happens again no more war of course that is no more war on uh, european soil which is partially true right but it's not for like any humanitarian purpose like it's more because it's more because like you know war is actually why it might be good for some sections of capital, right? Definitely is for some sections of capital. It's by and large not great for, you know, capitalist countries. It's usually a failure, which is perverse, right? Because capitalism is like the system that seems to incentivize war, which it does. But, you know, it's not something they, they want, right? They Like capitalists do want stability. When something is work works, they want to keep it, you know? So, and for in Europe's case, which Europe was one of the most chaotic places okay probably the most chaotic continent ever honestly the european union is like this project of capitalists to be like let's keep let's restore imperialism and prevent it from your and european supremacy from prevent from um eating itself you know like it did in two world wars well that's exactly what it is it's let's let's maintain european supremacy you know it's it's it presents itself as no more war but really it means no more war on european soil war outside the the confines of so-called fortress europa is a-okay you know providing of course that it advances western capitalist imperialist interests so that's that's just a side point that's we'll, we'll get back into this whole idea of fortress europa a little bit later on but uh, it is an important aspect Okay, so uh, we got to the point where we said that, of course, we have this US-backed project for the restoration of Western capitalism against the threat of socialism from the East. Now, expanding beyond just the monopolization and regulation of the coal and steel industries, the more industrially expansive 
European Economic Community, or EEC, was established in 1957 with the Treaty of Rome. While each of the member states of the original EEC were re-emerging capitalist imperialist nations in their own right, the EEC began to admit membership to underdeveloped countries that were politically useful from the 1970s onwards. For example, Ireland was admitted entrance to the EEC in 1975 to function as the resident tax haven for the European imperialist powers. And of course, this very much continues to this day. The European Union, as we know today, came into existence in 1992 with the signing of the Maastricht Treaty, which in turn came into force in the following year in 1993. And this brings us to the current stage of this anti-democratic, neoliberal, white supremacist fortress Europa, this international monopolist capitalist association comprised of seven primary institutions whose primary purpose is to protect Western capitalist imperialism and facilitate the exploitation of the oppressed masses of the world. And by the way, that includes A, the exploitation of countries outside of the EU, and B, exploitation of countries and nations within the EU, that is, internal colonies and semi-colonies. And some examples of the semi-colonies might be Poland, Greece, Portugal, Ireland, and of course there are full colonies like the aforementioned French Guiana in Latin America, just north of Brazil, and so on and so forth. So that's that's an important point as well, just to, to highlight as well, because people often think of the European Union, when they start to understand it as being imperialist, they'll see it as an imperialist bloc, but it is important to note that there are internal colonies and semi-colonies within the confines of the European Union. Yeah. So I think that brings us up to today. I'm not sure if you if you had any points on that or any thoughts on that that you wanted to that you wanted to express before we push forward. Yeah, and um what I mean by in, internal colonies is that the countries of in the European Union not only exploit countries like in Africa in Latin America, but they exploit each other, which is really important to note. And you see this on pretty much all levels to a certain extent, but you can see it more acutely with under uneven levels of development. And this is clear if you just look at how some countries in the EU clearly benefit more than others. You look at France and Germany, you know, they do fairly well. Then you look at countries like Poland, Ireland, uh, Greece, and even Portugal, who really struggle significantly. And you also have economies in the EU that might you know, on paper have like high amounts of economic growth, but they're very overwhelmingly in one sector. Like, for example, Spain has like a real estate bubble because people throughout Europe, you know, buy up Spanish real estate, but it has a very high unemployment rate because due to a lack of industry there. Um, also, I, I, without getting too ahead of myself, but like you have un, uneven levels of development also because by nature, this type of system, as we alluded to, incentivizes wages to be cut as much as possible to invite foreign investment, right? Because when you have like a system like this, it basically creates a system where capitalists can pick and choose where to bring their money. Uh, when you have that, you have an incentive to essentially cut benefits and create the most favorable conditions for capitalists as opposed to the working class. Yeah, nail meat head. <laughs> <laughs> now meet head 100% and we you know we're going to dive into that we're going to dive into capital controls uh, currency sovereignty and so on I, I think in the in the next section as we as we really dive into how the EU institutionalizes neoliberalism uh, I'm not sure do you want to do you want to push forward with the with that whole section of institutionalized neoliberalism are, are you good to jump into that or? um I would say for those who don't know what neoliberalism is check out my podcast with John the Duncan on neoliberalism. We go over it like super extensively and even in Europe too with its manifestations. So 
I think that like that should be fine with, but like how institutionalized neoliberalism is important because, you know, as to briefly summarize, neoliberalism is essentially a form of state capitalism whereby, you know, these quote unquote free market policies and deregulation are not, it's not a laissez-faire approach as opposed to previous free market capitalism. It's very much guided by the state, but for the corporations. You can look at when with neoliberalism is, is very, very statist. And with the case of the EU, you have like these super organizations of like the EU <laughs> who create laws, you know, um, that make neoliberalism inescapable. You know, there's this quote from Yanis Varoufakis, economist who used to be, he used to be a finance minister of Greece, who you know got totally screwed over by the EU, is that you know in the in the EU economic uh, pol political elections cannot dictate economic policy. Why is that? Because the way it's structured is that you literally can't do things like, for example, try to tax the rich. When in France they tried to tax the rich, what did the rich do? They went to Belgium. <laughs> yeah, they just they just go different places and and this is due to various reasons but like there's all sort of laws that the eu has that basically institutionalizes a system of deregulation low regulation on business of subsidization of business and of basically profit maximization and we should may as well we might as well get straight into like capital controls because that's like a key mechanism in which uh, the eu creates favorable conditions for capitalists. And then after we can maybe jump into currency sovereignty, which is a big one. Mm. Yeah, so there's, there's, there's a couple of subcategories within this that I want to talk about. And capital controls is one. Uh, currency sovereignty is another. I want to talk about how the EU is inherently anti-democratic. I want to talk about the four freedoms of the European Union. Well, let's do capital controls because that's just to clear up what it means by like capitalists moving from one place to the other. Because... This is like you have. This is like a real problem because you cannot discipline the bourgeoisie even at a social democratic level. You know, like you can't even use social democratic reformist policies to I don't know, like tax the rich or impose regulations on them, or even you know, to it's it's really hard to discipline the bourgeoisie even from a reformist standpoint with this system because with capital controls they're able to simply switch to another country now if you want to get an example of capital controls and how kind of ireland in many ways is like the pinnacle of like tax havens where, where companies um, like bermuda and all, yeah i mean through like the double irish uh double irish or the dutch sandwich the single malt it, it's up there i mean it just i mean countless billions have been extracted through ireland i mean there's you know you can actually go into dublin city center and you can go to the what's called the ifsc the irish financial services center and it's just like office blocks of empty buildings and the buildings just there'll be like one office that is apparently uh, you know where this company from like the United States or from around the world or wherever it might be is supposedly set up and then <laughs> supposedly it is also controlled from Bermuda uh, so because it's not it's set up in Ireland and controlled in Bermuda uh, apparently according to the tax sheets through this uh, tax loophole this tax evasion loophole called the double Irish uh, they don't need to pay taxes in either territory you know because in Ireland it's said well it's controlled from Bermuda and in Bermuda they're like well the business is created in Ireland so okay so you know it's, it should you'll be taxed in Ireland uh, in practice it's taxed in other countries so uh, basically 
they can get away with paying absolutely no corporate tax. So even though the corporate tax in Ireland is increasing, I mean, it started out pretty low. Uh, historically, it was only like around like 12%, but now it's it's increasing in line with other European countries. Uh, but in reality, the actual corporate tax that's being paid is between 0 and 2%. <laughs> that's the actual reality for these uh, multinational, transnational corporations, and there's over 1,500 of them uh, that are located in Ireland and taking advantage of this scheme. You know, Now, that's, that particular loophole has been closed as of 2020, uh, but there's a million... There's a million variations of that particular uh, tax avoidance scheme called the double Irish. And uh, yeah, there's 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 a there's a bunch of different versions of it. And all they need to do is tweak one thing and, and then they can get away with it again. So but that's but that's how the Irish comprador bourgeoisie is set up. It's set up to serve imperialist interests. And of course, it even went to, to bat to defend Apple from paying 13 billion uh, euros in taxes. <laughs> you know, it actually it actually goes to bat against the European courts. Interesting. Yeah, I heard about that. The European yeah. Court of Justice just to defend the imperialism, you know, just to, to act as like the, the tentacles of imperialism <laughs> in Ireland and across the European Union. So, so that's how the Irish state is set up. You know, it's set up ultimately to be the servant of imperialism it's not an imperialist state in and of itself it's a servant of imperialism which i think is an important distinction you know what i mean it's not like as though there is yes. some like there's not some national bourgeoisie here who's actually fighting for its own interests no they're like fuck it let's just fight for the imperialists let's fight for the yanks let's fight for the for the brits whatever imperialist is going to pay the highest amount we'll we'll just we'll, we'll look out for them and we'll, we'll fight for them even if that means going to court and uh, and not getting taxes that could be used to fund uh to help solve our own housing crisis or you know yes. our own healthcare issues or, or whatever it may be but anyway we're, we're getting a little bit it's off track right? it's useful to mention capital controls and there's a book i'd recommend called um bad samaritans by the economist hachu chang hachun chang and um really you notice that any actually successful capitalist country like it was successful in the sense that it actually reduces poverty has capital controls like, for example, uh, China, China, Vietnam, South Korea. Well, South Korea, maybe not anymore, but at one point they did. Singapore all had capital controls. Now, what does this mean? So, like, for example, you, you with a country with capital controls, there's restrictions to you can't just invest in their companies through the stock market, let's say. And then once they hit a certain high to sell them right away and take your money. Right. Because this is this allows like finance capital people like investors to really exploit the shit out of countries and this is kind of what happened to chile and mexico is they had huge amounts of capital flow into the country only to fly out really fast you know and this 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 basically makes these countries at the mercy of capitalists and capitalists can you know reap the rewards um but not uh face the risks so like there's usually with capital controls, there's a restrictions on how long you need to actually have the uh, the investment in like that country, you know, before you can sell it. There's like a time limit before you can sell it. There's also usually taxes. There's all sort of restrictions as to like where you can invest, how much you can invest. This is super important because if you actually want to use like capitalism strategically for development, like as a way to participate in a world economy, which, you know, some countries have done successfully, right, compared to other countries like you know, China, um, Japan, Singapore, and South Korea are like the, the tiger economies have sort of benefited from foreign investment, but that's because they were super stringent in how they regulated that foreign investment and made sure that it benefited and went to the development of its industry as opposed to merely flowing in, you know, all the speculative finance capital flowing in only to fly out really fast, which is what happened uh, 
uh, to under Chile when I when uh, Pinochet came to power and after like the mass killings and stuff there was like a capitalist stability there was huge amounts of foreign investment going into Chile and then you know capitalist economists like to say oh Chile was economic success but they never look at like the 90s where it's like the capital flew out <laughs> you know and then like <laughs> Chile, Chile like just never really had that like miracle economy in the same way that like Japan or China has where they're very like tightly regulated with a state capitalist model and this is the importance of like neoliberalism is all about you know you know capitalism at the, at the end of the day creates a ruling class where the the benefactors the utmost benefactors are capitalists but neoliberalism is i would like to look at it as the capitalists almost like rule the state indirectly sometimes directly if you're it's like america right <laughs> straight up like bribe all the candidates but it's the the capital like the state is not ruled for like a public purpose you know where there's like the nation state comes first and capital comes after neoliberalism it's like nation states almost non-existent really you know is you and removing capital con, capital controls which the U european you know does they don't have like they they create an environment where pretty much let's say i invest my capital in france if the government introduces laws that I don't like, I can just sell it, go to Belgium. Whereas if you had capital and controls, you might face huge taxes or you might not even be able to do that. You might have to wait a certain amount of time. You know, so this is like huge because if capitalism is going to have like these benefits of uh, developing the productive forces, which it can, it has to be directed and made that way. Whereas if you have a system where there's no capital controls, there's it's literally for the benefit of the capitalists and no one else. Like you're not going to develop any productive forces really. And this is, it's really important that people understand like what the European Union is. And you know, what, when we talked about this before, I think I alluded to this earlier on, we talked about the so-called four freedoms of the European Union. That is the free movement of goods, services, capital, and persons, you know. So these so-called freedoms, quote, in massive quotation marks, these ensure that all member states remain open for capital, <laughs> you know. And of course, this is, this is proving particularly useful for the EU's exploitation of its internal colonies and semi-colonies to which huge huge amounts of capital via foreign direct investment and consequently extraction of huge amounts of profits occurs with of course the, the aforementioned free movement of capital which is then uh, uh, which can then be filtered through these tax havens like Ireland's true tax avoidance mechanisms like the so-called double Irish which you talked about earlier the single malt and so on so the taxes don't need to be paid on these super profits so this is really really important uh, when we come to the, the conversation about uh, capital control laws you know the four free freedoms of the European Union single market prohibits any capital controls in all but extreme circumstances. So basically capital controls can only be enacted at the European Council and European Commission's discretion. Once again, this points to, as was alluded to earlier, this anti-democratic nature of the European Union. There have been a couple of exceptions to this prohibition on the, over the past few years, over the past 15 years in particular. Um, particularly coming out of crises as uh, sort of the past 15 years in Iceland, in Cyprus, in Greece, uh, particularly in the wake of the 2008 uh, banking crisis and so on. Uh, but as a general rule, as a general rule, capital controls are prohibited in order to keep countries open to foreign direct investment so that capitalists can siphon wealth out of these countries and extract their returns, you know. And of course, this is very apparent within the semi-colonies within the European Union, such as Poland, Ireland, Greece, Portugal, and so on. And of course, we talked about the old-style colonies like French Guiana and 
Latin America and so on and so forth. So yeah, look, this, this, this prohibition on capital controls, it's just another means of preventing anything that may inhibit imperialist exploitation by moving in a more socialistic or, let's be honest, even social democratic direction. You know, uh, we, we can't do socialism under these conditions, especially when this is enshrined in EU law. Most definitely not. You can't even do social democracy. No, no like, not a is, chance. This is this is worth. I mean, saying now we might as well say it is like you've had countless. So there's a there's this a sort of meme in Europe that the socialist parties are social democratic parties. The social democratic parties are the neoliberal parties with like a nicer face, and communist parties are like the only socialist parties. And even then, sometimes some of the communist parties are like kind of you know reformist. So Most it's, of Euro communist parties, we call them. Well, there's some that are legit, right? But like, there's um, it's it's mixed. But like, yeah, usually like the communist parties are the only ones who like care about like socializing the means of production, whereas you have the socialist parties are more like you know maybe like some level of nationalization or, or you know more benefits for workers, higher wages, etc. You've had many cases where socialists were elected to office in Europe. Like, for example, I can think of right now, Spain has a socialist government. Portugal has a socialist government. Um, and um, But, like, do they have socialism? Absolutely not. I would argue that they barely even have social democracy. You know, I would argue that they have, they just have neoliberalism in those countries. Yeah, basically, I mean, basically, it's like it's nicer neoliberalism, right? We got to be careful because it, there's levels of neoliberalism. Not all neoliberalism is thatcherism yeah right? it's not all Peter which is like Chile. Of, <laughs> yeah so there's levels to it but like at the end of the day you you notice with these socialist parties they never really crack down on the ruling class at all because you can't if you're in the european union if you do in the european union you'll have something called capital flight right which is you know this is the thing bourgeois economists like to always say why you shouldn't tax the rich why you shouldn't nationalize why you shouldn't regulate because capitalists will uh, leave the country and you'll have a you'll your industry will suffer uh, and that's true if you let them right you can just not let them do it right but that requires oh socialist authoritarianism right totalitarian uh, stalinism yeah <laughs> 300 you i phone venezuela <laughs> Yeah, I mean, well, Venezuela, the Iron, the Venezuela, man, Venezuela let that happen. Like Venezuela kind of let capital flight happen to a certain extent. Like, you know, it didn't respond to it till it's too, uh, till it's too late. But yeah, I mean, in, in European Union, it's not only it doesn't just let it's structurally created so that capitalists can like you know leave whatever they want so this pretty much makes it impossible to establish even a sort of social democracy so when you see socialist parties in europe be like, don't some people get all excited and be like oh yay you know um unless they oppose the eu they're not that serious i mean you have euro skeptics out there like there's for example in the french election right now uh who ran a Mélenchon is his last name, Democratic Socialist candidate. He's like a Euro skeptic, but he's not entirely opposed to the EU, which is, you know, still I, I'm really skeptical as to how much gains can even be made with that sort of approach. I think really, as long as the EU is not like trans, unless the EU isn't transformed to like a union of socialist republics, like I don't see, I don't see how uh, it, it really socialism or even even radical social democracy, to be honest can um be established now now i mentioned like i mentioned this is a little segue right is i mentioned taxing the rich p 
people have seen my videos on taxing the rich, you'll know that taxing the rich isn't actually necessary, you know, for funding government spending, but it is in the European Union. Why is that? Because the European Union has no currency sovereignty in it. Why? Because the European Central Bank prints the euro. And all the countries in the European Union, with I think an exception, like Norway for some reason, doesn't use the euro. Um, the UK but like, historically. And the, well, the UK is not even in the euro anymore. <laughs> they were like, fuck it, we're out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that's weird because Britain was like the only place in, in the EU that actually had like currency sovereignty and didn't have... It, it's so weird, man. But like not having currency sovereignty is a pretty terrible thing because um, if people watch my videos on modern monetary theory this is pretty much how like you if whoever controls the currency controls who how people are fed <laughs> controls your policies it controls everything i mean it's it, money makes the world go around right and when if you can't um the at the end of the day who prints the euro is a european central bank the ecb and you know that's influenced by you know on, in, on paper, all of the European countries, but in reality, mostly Germany and France, but and German, German, French bourgeoisie, that is. And and uh, really what happens when you can't print your own currency, you got to get that currency from somewhere. You got to really f f primarily rely on taxes. And if you can't tax the rich, because if you tax the rich, they'll just go to somewhere else in the European Union where they don't you know, tax the rich very highly. Like, you know, when France tried to raise taxes on the rich, they just went to Belgium and Ireland. So where do you get, where do you get the monies? Well, they don't. Okay. So they either tax the poor people, they tax the working class, or they just cut the programs, which is what we've been seeing. Probably I would argue austerity in the European Union has been even worse than austerity in like the United States <laughs> to a certain extent, right? Like, at least in recent years, like post-2008 crash. Yeah, it's it's been horrific. And that's because it's baked into the system. If you have a system where the ultimately who decides how much more currency is made is decided by like an undemocratic body like the European Central Bank, I mean, countries that are struggling are, are basically forced into austerity, you know? So when it comes to this conversation uh, with regard to sovereignty, I mean, when Godley wrote in 1992 that the power to issue its own money to make drafts on its own central bank is the main thing which defines national independence. So adopting the euro, member states, they've given away a portion of our national independence by doing this, you know. Uh, with regard to currency sovereignty, sometimes people draw this analogy between, uh, for example, to use, let's say, a bourgeois circumstance, this analogy between owning your own home versus renting a home. If you own the home, you have full control over everything, and that includes its problems, by the way, uh, but you can alter it and you can renovate the house as much as you want. You know, if there's a leaky roof, you can you can sort it out. You know, you don't have, you don't have to call up your landlord and try to get them sorted out. You know, you can you can do that. You know, uh, so everything ultimately falls to you. If you're renting, on the other hand, the landlord is ultimately the one who's in charge. They choose when you get your hot water. You know, repairs of facilities are almost entirely done at their discretion, and so on and so forth. And ultimately. You've got very little choice in the matter. So likewise, having your own currency gives you far more control of your own economy and having control of your own current your own country's monetary policy. And you know, you can take measures to, for example, fight inflation, you know, you can print more or less money, you can purchase and repay bonds in your own currency, you can set interest rates, and so on and so forth. You know, these are all really, really important. 
You forgot. You forgot the the. You forgot the only one that seems to actually work, and that's price control. <laughs> and price controls, exactly. And price controls. Yeah, like price price controls historically are like the main thing that seems to actually fight inflation, as opposed to interest rates actually have almost no relationship to inflation. Interestingly, like the more I looked into it, it actually makes it worse. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, but even that, as we mentioned, like price controls are also a thing that's pretty looked down upon by the EU. Because the EU is for maximizing the well-being of capitalists, so things like price controls, like the capitalists are not going to like that because that means they can't charge as much money as they want. Inflation is set by price setters at the end of the day, you know. And if they're allowed to set prices how they want, they will. And you know, if there's price controls in a certain country, which there still is, like Portugal has some level of price controls. Uh, definitely, they have a bit of rent control going on still, uh, but like it's at a very limited degree. Because there's, they're not going to be able to have price controls like, let's say, in uh, the USSR where like bread was extremely cheap and uh, all sort of basic necessities were cheap. <laughs> it's never going to happen in the European Union. No, you can't, you can't run into a deficit. That shit's illegal <laughs> by EU law, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I'd like, to, I'd like to talk a little bit more about this, about, you know, particular more forms of neo of basically what we call uh, a neoliberal agenda within the EU that really sets all countries that are members on not necessarily directly going you know from social democracy into neoliberalism necessarily but certainly in a neoliberal direction the guiding principles of the EU are that in their own words its member states must conduct economic policy in accordance with the principle of an open market economy with free competition and to comply with the guiding principles of stable prices, sound public finances and monetary conditions and a sustainable balance of payments. Okay? Going as far back as 1957, the treaty establishing the European Community, now known as the Treaty on the Functioning of the European Union, or TFEU, includes a classic neoliberal article such as, many of them actually, many classic neoliberal articles, such as Article 81, which prohibits any government intervention in the economy, which, quote, may affect trade between member states. Okay, so that's completely prohibited. Article 107, which prohibits state aid to strategic national industries. Article 121, which gives the European Council and the European Commission both unelected bodies, by the way, the right to, quote, formulate the broad guidelines of the economic policies of the member states of the Union. Article 126, which regulates the disciplinary measures to be adopted in case of excessive deficit. Again, you can't do deficits, you can't run a deficit in the EU. Uh, and of course, Article 151, which states that the EU's labour and social policy shall take account of the need to, quote, maintain the competitiveness of the union economy. Okay, so basically the treaties create a context wherein state aid, public procurement and nationalizations are all essentially illegal under EU law except under exceptional circumstances. This is the institutionalization of neoliberalism. I mean, this is like what Yanis Varoufakis talked about with the whole Greek experience is you had... Um, in, in Greece, you had a reformist, you know, uh, social democratic government elected that inherited a huge debt from the past. And as you mentioned, like deficits are completely uh, prohibited, basically, in the European Union, even though they do run deficits. 
but the problem is, is like normally with a deficit, what would you do if you had your own currency? It doesn't matter because it's in your own currency. <laughs> you know, Japan has a, a debt to GDP ratio of over 200%. It doesn't care. It's all in yen, right? But if you're Greece and you have a deficit in the European Union, the European Central Bank can say, uh uh, if you want more euros, you have to do these cuts. Now, the, now, Greece was in a position where it could have either possibly left the EU, which, you know, Yanis Varoufakis talked about was actually an option. But, like, people were very skeptical because it could have created, like, a lot of economic, like, they could have imposed a blockade, possibly, you know. There's all of these possibilities and risks that came with it. So, ultimately, they capitulated. Uh, and, he, you know, he resigned because he hated the government who, who basically capitulated to the EU. And what did they do? They fired... Uh, a huge portion of their government employees to you know reduce the deficit. They raised taxes on the poor. They um, basically you know structural adjustment, which is a way of saying of punishing the poor. <laughs> structural adjustment. Don't you hate their fucking neologisms? They're terrible. But uh, yeah, uh, you you see how important currency sovereignty is. Because it's basically like a leash, you know. Uh, this is why anyone who the, th the thing is, a lot of people who don't understand how modern money works, they think like everybody is in the e like everybody is in the EU. If that makes sense, like they think countries like the United States or Canada or Australia could has to can like run out of money, or if they have um, a deficit that you know bondholders will can be can hold them hostage which is not true because bonds don't actually fund spending but um yeah y in the eu though that's actually true and that's you see how disastrous that actually is and i don't know why anyone would, would that yeah, don't even get me started i was about to bring up like gold standard and stuff like that but like i'm not <laughs> sometimes people are so stupid economically dude you know not even just like libertarians but like old older marxist man like trotsky Believed in a gold standard. Jesus fucking Christ. Like Trotsky is actually the worst like uh, in terms of like these weird economic ideas. Don't get me started. But uh, um, yeah, uh, we can see how very, very much like it's kind of inescapable. And once you realize this, you realize that um, there's no reforming the system uh, unless you unless you completely change it. Like unless it was like. Re re reform to Trojan horse like a revolution to change the whole system because you can't it's not like something you can merely tweak and have outcomes the only way this hypothetical situation where you may be able to reform this the only way and, and the way it would have to work would be through unanimity just have like a majority of countries saying you know let's move towards a more socialist direction no you need unanimity in order to actually reform this. So this is one of the structures that they've used in order to enshrine neoliberalism. You know, So in order to, to change these treaties, you would need a unanimous decision across every single EU member state to make that happen, which is literally impossible, uh, especially with the oversight of the Eurogroup and the European Commission and, and so on and so forth. It's just, it's, it's, it's literally, it, there's no way that's ever going to actually happen. You know, There's always gonna be either, you know, Germany or France or, you know, whatever, imperialist they country. could just manipulate one of the governments you know if, they, if there's even if they had all of them except one country they could the capitalists could manipulate that one country you know like they do with joe manchin in the united states with the with the democrats is like the democrats have their like modest like spending agenda 
that they can't even get past because like the capitalists bribe that one democrat that one fucker <laughs> <laughs> there's always they always they always find a way to like you know sabotage the process what's um, uh, lenin say uh the, the democracy of bourgeois societies is as it's always I been mean, democracy for the rich <laughs> and only this, the rich yeah remember when we said uh this is anti-democracy that should ring a lot of bells with the social democrat types who often they like to consider themselves as like pro-democracy sometimes europe is seen as this beacon of democracy especially when it was established right it was often presented as this like democratic alternative to the soviet union uh in the eastern bloc so like but we see it's super not democratic and uh, if you want to get into that exactly like yeah the parliament stuff like that it's a really important conversation to have, yeah. So, you know, we talked about these neoliberal policies and, of course, they're enforced by the European Court of Justice or the, the, the ECG, the ECJ, excuse me, which, you know, heavily sanctions any country that attempts to, to step outside of this neoliberal straitjacket, you know. And uh, just to, to reiterate, you know, these treaties prevent currency devaluation, uh, direct central bank purchases of government debt, you know, for those countries that have adopted the euro. They prevent demand management policies or the strategic use of public procurement. And of course, they, they place very, very tight curbs on welfare provisions and the creation of employment via public spending, you know. So, for example, uh, for, you know, a very recent uh, contemporary example, people were very, very excited by the promises of a Jeremy Corbyn-led uh, left-wing or maybe social democratic centre-left Labour government in the UK, you know. However, the policies that were proposed in Corbyn's platform, including renationalization of key industries, you know, state aid, public procurement, etc., all of these would have been illegal under EU law, you know, uh, under the single market. And these would have incurred heavy sanctions upon the UK from the European Court of Justice. So to feed into this uh, democratic question <laughs> the court of justice <laughs> exactly the ecj is the court of justice it's justice against democracy justice against justice against feeding the poor the mob mentality this fucking feudal notion you know the mobs are out here to distort the the fucking bourgeois ideal you know we can't have democracy we have the tyranny of the majority the thing is even if even if britain had democratically voted in a left-wing social democratic labor government the democratic mandate of the people would have been completely subverted by the anti-democratic structures and institutions of the european union you know and these structures aren't something that citizens of the european union can reform now, as a former president of the european commission himself jean-claude juncker said at the beginning of syriza's mandate you know syriza from greece of course in 2015 you know came to power uh, he explained said himself there can be no democratic choice against the european treaties <laughs> he said himself you know he Basic, laid it out. so ba it's basically um you can vote for whoever you want but if they actually try to change things uh -uh. which is basically like if you notice if you take a little bit of notes like almost like uh, democracy in almost every capitalist country i mean you can sometimes elect a socialist but you know uh <sighs> You know, you might face a you might face a genocide or two. Uh, you're just going to get overthrown <laughs> you know, by, by imperialist powers. You're going to be Salvador ended. You know, that's the, that's the best case scenario. You know, so like this is it. The only options available to EU citizens are a accept these anti-democratic neoliberal terms or b reject the European Union itself in its entirety. That is to leave the European Union. Those are the only choices. Those are literally the two options before us. That's it. 
Now look, some people may say, hang on, you know, you could simply join the European Parliament, you know. Just join the European Parliament, become an MP become an MEP as they're called. Join your join your student politics organization. Get involved. <laughs> Change things from within. Change the world, man. Change the system from the inside. Look, this is this is demonstrably false. This is bullshit, and and we have to get into this conversation. No, we we do. We have to we have to get into this conversation about the institutions of the European Union because the European Parliament does exist. The European Parliament is a thing. It is one seventh of the European Union. One seventh, one out of seven official institutions of the European Union, and that's not counting the Euro the Euro Group, which we the, the Parliament uh, we will talk about under under, uh, under Tsarist Russia. <laughs> exactly, it's so democratic, you know. <laughs> no, but the, but you know, you make a good point. It is important. The European Parliament is a sham democratic institution, uh, and what do I mean when I say it's a sham democratic? institution it can't even propose legislation it can't propose its own legislation okay at very most meps people who have been directly voted in by uh, european citizens okay these meps they can vote to approve reject or make minor amendments to legislation that is handed down to them from the anti-democratic european commission which sits above them Okay. However, however, even this sham democratic aspect is undermined by the European Council, which is composed of the leaders of the EU member states who can reject even the legislative amendments proposed by the European Union. Now, what the fuck do I mean by that? The European Council is a is another body that's below the European Commission. The European Commission is the executive body at the very top of the European Union officially, uh, which can, can propose legislation and hand that down to be. Uh, decided upon and amended by the European Council and the European Parliament. The European Council is comprised of the uh, the heads or leaders of the member states of the European Union. Uh, this, of course, is can be democratic or anti-democratic in and of itself. Uh, for example, in Ireland, our head of state is Taoiseach Michal Martin, or you know, Prime, Prime Minister uh, Michal Martin, um, from a party known as Fianna Fáil, chosen by his party. Um, if you look at who people voted for in the 2020 election, uh, they voted overwhelmingly for Sinn Féin, uh, a party which couldn't get into government um, because the other parties basically strong-armed them out of it. The uh, the parties which were less popular, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael and the Green Party, made a, a made a pact between them to go into government together and so they formed their coalition government that way and they they basically pushed out the democratic will of the people which was uh if you accept the the terms of the free state that is uh, the irish free state uh, oh, it was sure that there would be about the soviet union man that sounds pretty undemocratic is it european union that sounds like the soviet union man european union is supposed to be democratic Super democratic, but unfortunately, these things happen every fucking day in every member state of the European Union. But the thing is that the head of the Irish state would, in the case of the Irish, if you look at the votes and who people voted for in Ireland, the overwhelming majority of people voted for Sinn Féin. So you would think that the head of Sinn Féin, the head of this party, Sinn Féin, this centre-left, social democratic, uh, national liberation-focused organisation, which has a, a very revolutionary history, but today is more social democratic and moving more and more towards the centre and even the centre-right as time goes on. But the head of state should be this person according to the democratic will and democratic mandate of the people but 
through various maneuvers, uh, our head of state has been this this motherfucker, Michal Martin, from a centre-right uh, neoliberal party, who the people didn't want to even fucking be there. So now he's our representative in the European Council, who gets to make all of these decisions, and who can block amendments, or block approvals, or block rejections uh, from the European Parliament itself. The whole process is completely opaque, it is anti-transparent, you can't see what your leader has voted for, or voted upon, it's all very much uh, behind closed doors you don't know uh, in what way your quote leader is voting and uh, the, the entire thing is completely unaccountable you know you, you can't recall uh, people on behalf of your country in any way shape or form but that's just the European Council you know there's also the European Parliament but above that again is the European Commission which of course is uh, completely anti-democratic and unrecallable and unaccountable it's, it's a bullshit organisation and they're the ones who form the legislation of the European Union they're the ones who propose all of the legislation you know so this is a this is a this is a massive uh, fucking problem. You know we've talked about we we've talked a little bit about how uh, if a Labour government in the UK had come to power, they wouldn't have been able to enact their policies because they would be all essentially illegal according to EU law. But even uh, going by uh, the institutions, even if you play the reformist route of getting people in. There is no fucking democracy. One-seventh of the European Union's institutions pretend to be democratic. One-seventh. They literally fucking pretend to be democratic. The rest of them aren't. And, and let me let me just lay out what those seven main institutions are, okay? And I'll, I'll use like a hierarchical system. So at the very top, you have the European Commission, which is essentially the EU government, uh, in which there's no democracy whatsoever. This is the executive power that proposes legislation. Okay, this hands down legislation to the European Parliament on one hand and the European Council on the other. The European Parliament has some degree of direct democracy in that uh, EU citizens can vote on their MEP, their representative to go in there, but they can't even propose their own fucking legislation. All they can do is suggest minor amendments or potentially uh, vote to approve or reject this or that proposal. On the other hand, you've got the European Council, who can, if the European Parliament says, uh, we've got this amendment, they can just say, fuck you. We don't want you. <laughs> we don't want your amendment. You know, actually, we decided we want to approve this this legislation. You know, and so things can pass that way either. So, so th this is uh, this is a, a workaround for a totally top-down, uh, totalitarian, authoritarian dictatorship uh, regime where uh, rules are handed down to us. You know, uh, and so that's how the European commission can strong arm its policies through and, and strong arm these uh, neoliberal policies through. And by the way, that's not even talking about the, the Euro group, which we'll return to, the Euro group, which stands above these things, you know. We'll get to that a little bit later, but we've got the European Commission at the top. Below that, the next level down below, we've got the European Parliament the, and the European Council. Uh, the other four institutions of the European Union are, of course, the Council of the European Union. Uh, that's the Council of, uh, not to be confused with the European Council. We also have a separate institution called the Council of the European Union of National Ministers. Jeez. And you've got a council for each area. I know, I know, it's really fucking confusing and it's meant to be confusing. It's meant to bewilder people uh, amongst uh, a morass of legalese. Basically, like it's basically dictatorship with uh, extra steps. With many extra steps, as Rick and Morty would would like to uh, point out. Yeah, I mean, my favorite is how people often juxtapose the European Union and Putin. Often, like the 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 European Union likes to always like claim this moral high ground that oh we're you know we're fighting against we're uh, we're fighting against authoritarianism we're it's democracy versus authoritarianism. 
And uh, if you really look at it, actually, it's almost kind of similar, like in the sense that, you know, Putin also has a parliament. He also has different parties, but like, you know, they can't actually ever win one. And uh, it's a sham democracy. <laughs> yeah, it's a sham parliamentary system. Like, you know, on paper, yeah, they can contribute to legislation. But like if it's not what Putin and the Russian bourgeoisie like, <laughs> nope, <laughs> not allowed, you know. And by the way. We're going to talk about that as well in the European Union. <laughs> We're going to talk about that exact situation you described. <laughs> the same thing. Happening yeah. in, the Europe, in Ireland. <laughs> but with extra steps. Like, I mean, the fucking perfect mode of control is number one. Tell people, like, make the ruling ideology the opposite. Well, not the opposite, but like... Freedom. Very much like conceals what actually is happening. And make what's actually happening as ambiguous and mystifying as possible. So that nobody even knows what it is. <laughs> so, so that like you know it's almost like to a certain extent you know they figure it out instead of ha like capitalist dictatorships are too obvious you know like no one believed pinochet was democratic <laughs> no one even no one thinks well even like most people don't think putin's democratic you know but you have a system that's far more sophisticated at really providing the same outcomes for the same ruling class and, and the similar undemocratic methods but with so many extra steps that it's just so hard to explain to the average simpleton. And because there's different committees and different, you know, they all call these things probably, I bet you the, what the bourgeois economists probably call this is checks and balances. <laughs> They'll say these are different layers of checks and balances, but it's not really checks and balances against the state. It's checks and balances against things that can change the state and the structure, right? Kind of like the U.S. The U.S. has like all kind of also like these institutions like the Supreme Court Right. That like, OK, if you, you know, there's this th debate that like even if Bernie Sanders somehow got support of all of U.S. Congress to pass Medicare for all, it would still get blocked by the Supreme Court, which I, <laughs> which I think is so insane. Decentralization is like uh, this is I'm part of the case I'm going to make in my like in some future videos. But decentralization don't understand decentralization is not inherently inherently left at all like capitalists have made such great use of decentralization i mean even though like it, it's actually really centralization when you look at it but like on paper because you have all these different committees and all these different organizations like it's theoretically decentralized but it's it's just more loopholes for to change it if that makes sense not loopholes sorry obstacles obstacles Look at these obstacles that we have in the fucking European Union. These these seven main institutions. I've only gone through like what fucking four of them so far. So we've got the European Commission, we've got the European Parliament, the European Council, the Council of the European Union, the Court of Justice of the European Union, the European Central Bank, a very fucking important one, and the European Court of Auditors. In terms of what presents itself as being democratic, only one of them even presents itself that way. Only one of them even attempts to present itself as democratic, you know. So that's one-seventh of the European Union. And even that's a sham democracy, has been, and as has been uh, demonstrated uh, thus far already, you know. Yes, European citizens can directly elect MEPs to the European Parliament, but the European Parliament can't even propose legislation. It's limited to simply approving, rejecting, or amending legislation that's handed down to it from the unelected European Commission, which in turn, and this is very, very important, we're going to get into the, to the meat and gravy of the conversation here now, in turn forms its legislation from the instruction of the also unelected Eurogroup. Okay, you know, we, we talked a little bit about this before, this is very, very important. These are the guys at the very fucking top, and for people who like conspiracy theories, please Google Eurogroup, you're going to have a, a fucking field today, I tell you. 
the Eurogroup, right? That's E-U-R-O-G-R-O-U-P, one word, refers to the informal meetings of the finance ministers of the EU, okay? It wields enormous power above the entire institutions that we've talked about so far, all of them, okay? And yet it has no legal basis whatsoever, none, not a single, there's nothing in EU law that states that this should exist, you know. And the thing is, like, what do I mean when I say that it's it's kind of like this this shadowy group that stands above everything? Uh, it, it really is. How its meetings function are completely uh, opaque. That is, uh, how it functions, it's not transparent to people, okay? Uh, all of the decisions are made behind closed doors. It doesn't publish minutes of its meetings. It doesn't publish meeting agendas. And it's completely unaccountable accountable even to the European Parliament. And yet it still holds enormous power above the executive power of the European Commission. You know, and then of course it hands down these instructions to the European Commission, which is of course the official executive power of the EU that proposes legislation and is the closest thing that we have to an EU government, okay? Uh, this Eurogroup, this Eurogroup that we've spoken about, uh, these really, these are the members and representatives of what Lenin would have referred to as the financial oligarchy, you know, that was described in, uh, in uh, imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism. Okay, so, you know, really, we're seeing that there's this anti-democratic hierarchy, you know, at the top and operating with no legal basis and behind closed doors and with zero accountability, you have the Eurogroup. A level below that, you have the actual European, the official European institutions, which have some kind of legal basis. Uh, At the top of these European institutions, you have the official uh, European Commission. You know, the official executive power, uh, which, under instruction by the Eurogroup, proposes legislation. This legislation then gets passed down to the next level below for approval, rejection or amendment, which includes the aforementioned European Parliament, as well as the European Council, comprised of the heads of states of each member state, which may or not may or may not have been chosen by the people at the national level. Uh, of course, we talked about this conversation about Ireland, about how our head of state has not been <laughs> democratically elected by the people. Um, and also, even if the European Parliament Uh, rejects a certain piece of legislation, that rejection can in turn be rejected or an amendment can be amended and so on and so forth by the European Council. It's a fucking joke, you know? So, you know, as we can see, it should be pretty clear by now that this is a massively anti-democratic set of official institutions, headed by an even less democratic, even less transparent and less accountable informal Eurogroup. You know, and even liberals, right? Even the liberals are, are critical of this to some extent. You know, the liberals are, are sometimes going to speak of what they call a, a democratic deficit. That's the big uh, buzz term that they use: democratic deficit uh, within the so EU. That's a euphemism. That's it exactly, yeah. And and but they hope that they can reform this away, you know. But as they say, and to use a, a, a fucking truism, you know, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. Uh, as even the formerly pro-European Union reformers like Yanis Varoufakis, as you've mentioned before, uh, has come to realise, you know, the EU can't be reformed as its very structures prevent that from ever happening. It can only be abolished. Now, I want to talk really importantly, and and uh, you may have some thoughts on that I, I would ask that you just uh, put them aside for one second uh, because we can talk about an example of anti-democracy in action uh, before we get into some other issues with the European Union uh, I want to talk about the Lisbon Treaty okay because this perversion of democracy by the European Union is seen time and time again by people in its member states 
One of the most egregious examples of this anti-democratic nature of the European Union being exposed in all of its absurdity was the 2008 Lisbon Treaty. Uh, and this was a treaty to pass a number of neoliberal amendments to the primary treaties that form the constitutional basis of the European Union. Now, to give some context uh, for people who don't know much about this, uh, we've been talking, we've been using a lot of terms, a lot of buzzwords and so on. This was a treaty that was 270 pages long. 270 pages of legalese, which if you didn't already understand the core basic European documents of like the EEC and the European Union and so on would make no fucking sense to you. You would have no idea what you're talking about, what it's talking about and so on. Uh, but ultimately they amounted to neoliberal and imperialist amendments, you know. Um, but let's let, let's look at how this played out uh, in Ireland, you know, in 2008. In order for this treaty to pass, the 2008 Lisbon Treaty, all member states of the EU had to ratify it. However, in all other states, this ratification could take place in a national parliamentary vote, you know, decided by the elected politicians, okay? In Ireland, on the other hand, our constitution required that a national referendum on such matters as these would be put to the people, okay, so that the people would vote on whether to accept this or not. So that's what happened. There, it was put to the people in a vote in June 2008, and the Irish people rejected it. They were like, fuck this. I've seen some dodgy stuff in there. I can't understand most of it. I see some dodgy stuff. They're talking about potentially forming like an EU army and shit. You know, this Lisbon Treaty is talking about a quote, common security and defense policy that shall include the progressive framing of a common union defense policy, which will lead to a common defense when the European Council acting unanimously so decides. Uh, they saw this shit and they were like, wait, we're moving towards uh, essentially United States of Europe. Uh, we're moving towards uh, conscription and an EU army and all this bullshit, the erosion of workers' rights, all kinds of problems, you know. Um, so people picked these little bits. Uh, anyone who actually uh, went and read the thing, which, you know, most people couldn't because it was 270 pages of legalese, which most people wouldn't understand without the context, you know. But the people rejected it, okay? And... You may think, oh, well, isn't that cool that the people were actually, they had the democratic opportunity to uh, to vote on it's, this. It's like the data rights. It's like, you know, when Facebook asks you, oh, do you consent? Or or like all these all these different things. Or, or like when you use like these softwares, it says, do you consent? And you have to read like this, uh, you have to read this document that is like, in, in legalese, it's like 100 pages long. And you're never actually going to read it. So you never actually know what the terms and conditions are. <laughs> you sell your soul because you're just like, fuck it. Yes, I accept. <laughs> but that's exactly what it was, you know? That's exactly what it was. And people were just like, fuck, I, I, don't, I don't want this. I don't want any part of this. The, the Irish people have generally been very Eurosceptical uh, until recently, you know. Irish people are now very pro-EU, unfortunately, uh, in general. Because of, of Russia or what? Uh, there's a lot of reasons for it. That's a much more complex conversation, which maybe we can get into a little bit later. But for now, it, it just it should suffice to say that actually Irish people are very pro-European Union uh, because Irish people in general, uh, the Irish people see the European Union as a progressive alternative to 
basically to British domination. So they kind of see, well, oh, the European Union offers us freedom and all these liberties and all this, this, that, and the other, and, and so on and so forth. And it's misguided, but it, it's that's what people are coming out of. People are coming out of a colonial mindset where they're saying, actually, the EU can help us uh, f- break free from the chains, you know, of, uh, of British of British imperialism and British colonialism right. for eight hundred years, you know. So there's, but there's a historical context for that. That's it's probably it's how Ukrainians feel, like how, exactly, uh, like yeah, Ukrainians, yeah. like oh. We want to be free from Russia, so let's choose a different master. Exactly. Let's choose a different imperialist. You know, of course, this is totally incorrect, but you can, you know, when you look at it historically in a historical materialist perspective, you can kind of understand why people have come to this conclusion, even though it is uh, it is incorrect, you know. But yeah. look, this 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 happened in June twenty thousand uh, in June two thousand and eight. Uh, the Irish people rejected the Lisbon Treaty. They said no, fuck that. And the European Commission was like, fuck that. We reject your rejection, and they forced us to vote on the treaty a second time to give the answer that they wanted. <laughs> you know, I think it was, a, it was either September. It was between September and November two thousand eight. Um, they basically just made us vote a second time uh, on it. You know, so yeah, basically, uh, if you don't like the result that the people give, fuck it, make them vote again and again and again and again until you get the desired outcome. You know, uh, and that's how democracy works in the European Union you know so look as we can see to anyone who genuinely does support democracy the European Union is not your friend despite the theater of the virtual the, the virtually perilous sham democratic European Parliament it is completely anti-democratic in its structures and institutions any democrats of the world uh, completely have to uh, oppose this uh, this let's use the word authoritarian system i mean it's really it's a really a big tragedy that it was the far right who were the first on a mainstream political level to call out the anti-democratic nature of the eu with like nigel farage ranting about the elites in the eu and the how it's run undemocratically by bureaucrats which is all true Right. But he was able to use this truth to then Trojan horse his anti-immigrant agenda, you know, and turn in discourse super far right. And that's such a tragedy because like you can't counter that in the way the liberals do. The liberals say, oh, anti-democratic elites. What are you talking about? There's no elites here. You know, elites. Are are you uh, anti-Semitic? You know, but like the truth is, is like, you know, like there are elites and actually most of them are not Jews. Right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> but like, and by the way, can I just say, can I say on that point, yeah. uh, the elite, uh, the the Euro group that I talked about, this this shadowy cabal that's like overseeing this whole thing. Uh, the head of that is actually Irish at the moment. By the way, I will say. <laughs> so, uh, if you want to be, uh, if you want to get into conspiracy theories, maybe it's the the Irish who are controlling the world. <laughs> the don't Irish give, agenda. Don't, don't give the British people too much steam, man. Oh shit! They're gonna take that and clip that. Let's let's uh, let's clip that out of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, the uh, it, it sucks because you know now people say like, oh, you are skeptic. Do you think the EU is run by elites? It's undemocratic. You must be a Brexit guy. Uh, you must be you know like part of UKIP. You must support UKIP. And this is like the problem. Why? And this is why like you know the. The left really has to like hijack these issues before the right does, because the right sometimes will point to sort of truism, like you know, um, like for example, like Trump. So we'll sometimes point out like the deindustrialization of the U.S. You know, by how like jobs are leaving, which is true, but then they use that to Trojan horse like a very reactionary agenda that is not only makes things worse, but it's like does not eat, solve any of these problems at all. Um, so yeah, I mean like. 
Also, the irony that, you know, anti-EU sentiment came, was channeled the hardest in Britain. When Britain, I would say, was the least negatively affected by the EU, especially because it had its own currency. It just adds an extra level of irony when there's like countries that are so much more screwed by the EU, like Greece, Ireland. Uh, I would say Spain and Portugal, too, like in terms of austerity and Italy, really, like probably everybody, but it's especially like Greece. I think this is this is actually a really important point uh, and a point of massive departure between people on the left and people on the far right and so on and so forth. You know, uh, our analysis of the EU uh, is situated in an anti-colonialist, uh, anti-racist, anti-imperialist uh, backdrop. That's that's where we're coming at this from. You know, the EU is a colonialist, imperialist, white supremacist set of institutions, and that's sometimes uh, under the catchphrase of Fortress Europe. Right? When you say when you say white supremacists, be clear that you mean like the white supremacists structurally, because some people will say, "Oh, well, you might have you might have colored people or in par- in office somewhere, right?" So they'll say, "Yeah, I mean, not- of course, you could have a, an intersection on imperialism. That's that's very much possible, <laughs> you know." Uh, that's- <laughs> the CIA has proved that, but uh, but no, look, uh, really, this this is an important point to, to hammer to hammer home, you know, to to anybody who was appalled by Donald Trump's uh, wall with Mexico, you know, if you thought that was abhorrent, then you'll no doubt apply a similar level of condemnation to the <laughs> virtually identical borders of the European Union uh, that have been mounted in Spain, Greece, Lithuania, or elsewhere. You know, uh, these are these massive, insurmountable borders. And what they've done is they've caused migrants and refugees who are often escaping war in their home countries to pursue extremely dangerous routes into the EU, okay? So, and this is a really, really important point, okay? Uh, every year, as a result of this, as a direct consequence of this, you know, and if you're in North America, you can think of the, the Mexican wall of this, uh, you know, as a direct parallel. As a result of this Fortress Europa approach, thousands of migrants and refugees die trying to reach Europe via the Mediterranean Sea from Africa and West Asia. Now, this is, a, this is, a, this is we're getting a little bit heavier here. Uh, but you may recall um, the death of Alan Kurdi from 2015. This is a two-year-old Syrian boy from uh, a Kurdish background, and his uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, his uh, yeah his his lifeless body washed up face down on a beach after his family tried to cross the Mediterranean Sea from Turkey to Greece, uh, and they drowned. You know the the image of his body on the shore, this 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 face down little boy, uh, was very widely circulated. Uh, that's that's the reality of Fortress Europe, uh, and hundreds, if not thousands, more like Alan Kurdi meet with this uh, similar fate every year. So uh, what kind of internationalist could ever support this? The supposed, quote, internationalism of the European Union sounds great in theory until you realise that it only applies to white Christian people. Right? And that, that may sound quite uh, extreme to people who are listening right now, but uh, we can see a very stark contrast between how the European Union a few years ago was treating Syrian refugees compared to how it right now is treating Ukrainian refugees, okay? Uh, citizens across the European Union member states are opening their homes, and they're being directly encouraged by the state, by the way, by each of the member states to, to open their homes up to Ukrainian citizens uh, to help this country in need, this country that's under attack, you know, this uh, imperialist war of aggression that Russia is mounting on Ukraine, which is true, by the way. I'm not in any way underplaying that, you know. Yeah, we're not Pat. So we're not. We're not. We're not a, a dumbass. Um, 
Like anti anti Americanism is not communism, okay? And we're not these campus dipshits who think that you know someone who's anti American is suddenly anti imperialist. No, what the fuck that? I mean, uh, Russia is an imperialist power, as as is China, and so on and so forth. Stay tuned for the Patreon podcast for that. Plug. <laughs> but the thing is, man, isn't it how isn't it so fucking funny how the European Union never takes such an open and welcoming approach when it's black or brown colonized people who are escaping war zones. Isn't it fucking funny? Isn't it fucking funny how they do that? How the yeah. how Ukraine I is, mean, is upheld like this? The the fucking hypocrisy. I remember in 2015 when there was like the first big refugee crisis, right? Or wasn't the first, but like it was a big refugee crisis, and uh, or if we we maybe we even shouldn't call it a crisis, but like. Um, yeah, where like Germany especially let in a lot of refugees. I remember there was this, this is like when the discourse really started shifting to the right. You know, Nigel Farage started to get a bit big. And uh, this this idea of, you know, radical Islam and stuff like that. Uh, and also this fear of refugees. The irony is, is you know, as a, as a person who's, who's a part Lebanese, who's, you know, Lebanon has a pretty much very connected history with Syria. I know Syrians pretty well. And, you know, we don't like most of us, we don't like radical Islam either. You know, like radical Islam is reactionary. It's incredibly reactionary. But the irony, right, is that out of all like the um, Middle Middle Eastern countries, like Syria is an, is v- probably one of the, the least fun, the least fundamentalist, honestly, like really like radical Islam is, is actually extremely oppressed <laughs> in, in Syria, you know, and uh, and, you know, Syrians, extremely hardworking people. Like, you know, I'm sure all countries have hardworking people, but for real, like, that was a stereotype. They're like, Syrians and Lebanese especially, like, they want their kids to always be, like, doctors and engineers and shit. They're fucking overachievers. Like, out of all the people you'd, like, not want as refugees, it's so weird to me that people are like, Syrian refugees, they have this idea that they're coming, like, they're, like, they're all, uh, I don't know, um, part of Al-Qaeda or something. Or like, which is insane because you see the United States like is openly supporting like a, a, a Wahhabist, a radical Islamic regime, you know, Saudi Arabia and is it's ultimately I think it's just it's, it's ultimately xenophobia of uh, fear of like the other, um, especially fear of like the, the brown, which is also a weird category because, you know, a lot of Syrians like look like they could easily be Greek sometimes. <laughs> So, it's, it, but it's an imagination. Like I, I remember very vividly, like in in that time, 2015, when like really I noticed even liberals were getting racist, like like Bill Maher and stuff. And 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 what's weird is that it seemed like a lot of these people who were so fearful of Syrian refugees never actually met Syrians, and usually they did haven't. Uh, and that, and that's the case often in general with the psychology of immigration, I find, because you tend to see like a lot of the places that are the most racist are like people that have the least immigrants, like rural places and stuff like you can see, like, for, especially like in, in Canada, the example of Quebec, like in Montreal, like generally a lot less racist. Montreal is extremely cosmopolitan, like kind of like Toronto, like New York. But the rest of Quebec is super racist. But like that's where they have like barely any barely any immigrants, which is so fascinating to me. Like, I don't know. People should check out Imagine Communities by uh, Benedict Anderson, his name. But yeah, it's a good big book about nationalism. 
Okay, so I suppose just I just I really want to sum up, you know, uh, like what we've said so far. All progressive forces, whatever you, whatever you might call yourself, whether you're like a left liberal, a social democrat, a socialist, communist, ML, Maoist, whatever Trotskyist, whatever the fuck you are, I don't I don't care. All progressive forces should support leaving the European Union. It's an anti-democratic, anti-communist, neoliberal white supremacist, colonialist, imperialist, and ultimately irreformable institution. And it's our job as progressives, as those on the left generally, I suppose, to help people understand these irrefutable facts and the true nature of this extraordinarily reactionary imperialist institution. Because unfortunately, uh, we have not done that so far. The left has not put forward a coherent, clear message as to why the European Union uh, is a bad thing, why it is bad for the international working class and oppressed masses. We haven't put that across clearly. Uh, as you've said, uh, Nigel Farage and the far right have been very clear in their messaging. Uh, the left has pretty much just uh, positioned itself in many ways as just being the opposite of whatever the far right is. And it hasn't put forward a consistent position on this matter and and that's what we need to do that's what we need to that's what we need to address moving forward you know so so i'm not sure if you had any other thoughts uh, with regard to this question of legsit i'm not sure if that answers the question already yeah i think well that that very much alludes to it in that uh, i think there well there was a lexit um movement to certain limited extent but you know corbyn ultimately decided not to embrace that and to kind of take a very ambiguous position to the EU, even though he actually supported leaving the EU. Like that That's was his right. personal opinion. Yeah. But he kind of then took this position as like, oh, well, we'll let people decide. It wasn't clear enough, whereas Boris Johnson was just like, let's get Brexit done. Yeah. Fuck it, yeah. we're out. Um, <laughs> people like that. Yeah, so that like direct messaging. I mean, like people always like overcomplicate why Boris Johnson won. They try to like complicate it to like these very minutia fact like he was just fucking more direct and brexit was just popular it was simple it was easy fuck it right that's easy you know <laughs> like it's clear yeah like you need we really need like messaging i mean i mean it's if, if that isn't clear at this point i don't know, I don't know. but um i think it's important to just maybe the last thing is to reiterate fortress europa because you know this trump's border wall just to make it i know we said this but it's just to make it so clear is um, Trump's border wall was perceived as this like new thing. I remember the media was talking about it like it was a ridiculous thing that it was somehow like new, and that um, uh, you know Trump is often juxtaposed with you know liberal figures in the EU like Macron or you know Justin Trudeau in Canada. Um, I remember there was that famous clip of like Trudeau and Macron and Merkel kind of like talking, or laughing at Trump behind his back. And the you know liberal media likes to present this to say oh ho, ho, look how crazy Trump is when in reality you see the European Union has almost has been doing like the same kind of Trumpian xenophobic policies but worse right so maybe just like reiterate like how like Fortress Europa and how insane that is also maybe what this means going forward for climate refugees because that's going to be an unavoidable reality. So I would say it's very much an extension of the same logic of these are, quote, undesirable peoples we don't want here. And so it's fine for them to die outside, you know. Uh, and for anybody who calls themselves uh, any kind of internationalist, let alone a proletarian internationalist, uh, it should not be good enough 
to extend your internationalism only to white Christian people, okay? Why do I say Christian in particular? Um, if you look at, uh, we look at the European Union and the European Union member states, uh, we can look at Greece, uh, for example, and say, well, Greece is, you know, it's, it's, it's reasonably far from France and Germany and so on. Uh, right next door to that, you have Turkey. Uh, Turkey also applied for European Union membership in the 1980s. And of course, it's still not a member. You know, you mentioned earlier on in the stream that uh, many people from Turkey uh, look very similarly to how people from Greece might look. Uh, what's the difference? <laughs> what's the main religion that you have <laughs> in Turkey? What's the main religion that you have in Greece? Okay, things start to become a little bit clearer, a little bit more clearer that this is more of a, a white uh, Christian fortress. And if you're not adhering to that, then uh, then we're, we're going to have some problems. So yeah, it's, it's very much the exact same logic. If you oppose Trump's wall, uh, then you have to oppose Fortress Europa and uh, this white supremacist institution that we have here at the moment. And of course, we're going to see more and more deaths, countless deaths, as a result of climate crises and climate refugees. Uh, we're going to have global warming, we're going to have rising sea levels, and more and more people are going to want to get to an area that they perceive as being more safe, and more and more people are going to die. And if you support the European Union, then I'm afraid that blood is on your hands as well. Excellent outro. And speaking of proletarian internationalism versus nationalism, this is a new debate that's been sort of been revitalized on the left, for better or for worse, uh, with some people on the left calling themselves nationalistic or patriotic socialists. There's a big debate about that, that national question. I mean, it's not a new debate, but it's really been resurfaced in a more uh, questionable form of as of recently in the online left community which we'll talk about in the back room in the exclusive patreon podcast you can become a patron for as low as five bucks a month canadian which is four bucks a month american you can listen to that podcast and all exclusive podcasts that got on the channel the very spicy conversation and i cannot wait to get to it and check out marxist paul if you haven't already <laughs> Thank you so much. And thank you very much for having me on the show one time. I really appreciate the invitation. I hope that you've enjoyed this conversation and that your listeners have found this conversation useful in one way or another as educational, informative, or just for shits and gigs. <laughs> people have gotten something out of it, you know. And if people have any questions, you know, feel free to, to you know, get in touch with me. Uh, check out my the live channel, Paul Connolly. You can talk in the in the live chats there. We can have a chat. We can dive into any of these more. I can, we can flesh things out. It's, it's no problem. We can send me a message on Twitter, uh, Instagram, etc. Just get in touch if, if, if there are any issues that you're not really 100% sure about right now. And I can either talk to you about them a little bit more or at least point you in the direction of some sources that will better flesh out these issues. So thanks very much for having me on. I really appreciate it. And, uh, and all the best uh, to everybody who's, who's listening and who's been uh, involved in this. Based.